Hey, 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 everybody. My name is Carlos Matos, and I am coming from New York City, New York. And let me tell you that we are really changing the world as we know it. The world is not anymore the way it used to be. Mm -mm, no, no, no. Be connected. Wow. Be This is Sam, this is Paul, and this is Southpaw. We have a special guest today, Rachel Fox. Yeah, why don't you introduce yourself because you have a lot of stuff on your resume. Uh, I am 22 years old. I, well, I taught myself day trading when I was 15 years old and started a blog site called Fox on Stocks to teach people how to invest in the stock market. Um, yeah, and that's, that's what I do. But then you also have a background. You started in Hollywood entertainment, that kind of stuff first, right? Right. Yeah. When I was uh, nine years old, I moved to Los Angeles and, uh, started acting in different shows and films. Um, and, uh, and then as I got older, got into investing and all of that. And then uh, another claim to fame, you gave a TED talk, right? Yes. How old were you when you gave the TED Talk? I was 19. Okay. So you were still a teenager. Yeah. So it's important to note why you introduced your age is because today the topic is about the Gen Z struggle. I would say 22. That's what they were categorized as Gen Z, according to the yes. internet. Yes. And, and you would be, Paul, you would be more of a millennial. I would be a Gen Y, correct. You're a Gen Y? Millennials are Gen Y. Millennials is the name they came up with afterwards. No, I think I'm Gen Y because I'm older than you. I think you're Gen X. Anyways, it's about like 10 or so years apart, everybody here. So we have about three different generations. And the topic is about what it was like for all of us as a young adult, what kind of struggles we had and how it's changed in the last really 30 years or so. How old were you when you graduated, Paul? College. I was 21 when I graduated college, and this was in 2009. I graduated in early 2000s, and then Rachel, you didn't go to college, right? I didn't go to college, but if I did, I would have graduated, I think, 20, uh, 2017. Okay. So. You're technically a Gen X. I'm You're technically born, Gen X. Yeah, 1979. That's right. Gen Y starts at 1980. And then what is millennial? Gen Y, 1980 to 94. Millennial and Gen Y is the same thing? Yes. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Well, fuck these names. <laughs> really, what's important is uh, that there's basically three generations here. And really, you could even say it's a different generation every five years because of the internet. Things change so quickly. And the politics changes so quickly and the economy changes so quickly. So let's start from the beginning. 
with you, because you started out acting so early, that led you to now, which probably gave you a different experience and different struggles than other people that might have been even harder or unique. And maybe it's not even that unique for your generation, because I think Gen Z especially grew up like, oh, you could be a billionaire, tech, whatever, without even going to college. You know, when I was growing up, the expectation was, oh, I want to grow up and one day be a, a millionaire. And now I think if you're really young, you have to grow up and be a billionaire. It's just been all leveled up. So yeah. you came here at nine years old, right? Yeah. Where'd you come from? I came from Ohio. Okay. Midwest. Your whole family moved here? Whole family, yeah. We all came out here um, mainly just uh, so I could get into acting and we could try out, uh, I could try out the business and see how I liked it, see how it worked out. It ended up working out really well, pretty fast. Um, and where was it? Your idea to become an actor or is yeah. it something? Okay. Yeah, it was my um, it was my parents' idea uh, back in Ohio to sort of get me involved in different plays and theater just so I could be good at public speaking just because they thought that was an important skill. And then um, I just got really into acting and uh, convinced them to move out to California, basically. And was it at the beginning, the first few stuff that you booked, was it more voice acting stuff? Voice acting stuff I did a little bit of, but later. Um, the first things that I uh, kind of got into was mostly TV, uh, different TV shows, and then a couple films, and then voice acting too. The thing you worked on the longest was Desperate Housewives, right? Yeah, Desperate Housewives, yeah. Okay, and you were like the kid of the main character or something? Yeah, exactly. Okay. I think Desperate Housewives, even for my generation, was a little bit older, I think. Yeah. I think it came out when... I was in college or right out of college. And so it was a lot of like moms who are probably older than you. And then a lot of actually um, like a lot of their daughters watched it with okay. them. That was like the main demographic. I just remember it was a weird show that it was on like Sundays or something, right? Yeah, yeah. So it was like a popular show on a Sunday, which was very unusual. Yeah. How long did the show go? The show went on for like, I don't know, nine years or something. I was only on for two seasons. Mm. And then they changed all the storylines and all and that. And they killed off your character? Basically, or yeah. <laughs> they killed off the kid? <laughs> uh, they're ruthless. They're, huh. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you succumbed to cancer or a car accident or was um, it No, I actually, I was so, my character was like a, she was an evil child and she manipulated her stepbrothers into like jumping off roofs and like oh. burning down buildings and houses. And she like got all these kids to do a lot of really bad things. And then they just like kicked her they oh sent so her this to wasn't like board. a sitcom this wasn't like a no, show this is like, like a drama <laughs> but it's like a this is a dark drama this was yeah yeah it borderline yeah what station was this on abc jesus i know <laughs> abc would allow such content to go on i just know them as the modern family channel it's like oh yeah these people so when you're acting and especially as a kid then how does the education work because don't they, especially in California, they have special laws. You, they got to make sure you're educated and don't just grow up to be a dumbass. Yeah, kind of. Um, yeah, you basically just get schooled on set. Um, and if you're in school at the time, then you just take your schoolwork with you and just do it on set. But you only have to school for three hours a day instead of six hours. And then did you actually ever go to regular school or were you always? I did. Um up till eighth grade and then middle of eighth grade, I left and was homeschooled for high school. And then um, I finished early just because I wanted to get mm. done with it. And I right as I finished, I was around 15. And that's when I picked up day trading because 
Well, what was regular school experience like for you being an actor? Was it tougher? Would the kids pick on you because you were acting or? Um, they, they treat you like differently. Um, but it, yeah, I don't know. It kind of, you get used to it, I guess. So that was just kind of like what was normal to me. It was kind of just did you like a little school? bit different. Um, it was fine. I, I didn't love it. I didn't like being stuck in like one uh, place and like being told where to go. So you preferred homeschooling then? Yeah, definitely. Free okay. range. And then if you're a kid actor and you're a part of the union, you get all the same benefits as any other actor, right? Yeah. So yeah. the residuals and all the protection under the union and all yeah. that stuff, right? Yep. But in California, I think when you're a kid actor... You have to have a Coogan account, right? That's right, yeah. Okay, so all your money, a certain percentage of it had to go to Coogan accounts. 15%, yeah. To protect your future and whatever. And then when do you get access to that? When you're 18? Yeah, when you're 18. Okay. And then when you got access to that, is that what you first started day trading with? So I got, um, I day traded a little bit uh, before that when I was like 15, 16, 17, um, just with other money that wasn't in that account. And then when I turned 18, I did. But take that was like that. with your dad's account, right? Because you're not allowed to open up an yeah, account. Yeah, exactly. It was a jo- it was um, it was a joint account, um, but it was still all money that I had earned. My parents would not let me like. But it was, was it like a custodial account or something? Yeah. So it was under your name, but your dad was the guardian of the account yeah. until you were 18. That's right. Yeah. And so part of homeschooling, you learned day trading. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was it your dad that taught you how to day trade or you mostly learned yourself? My it was actually really my mom who had the background in finance. She was an advisor. She had her all of her uh, Series 7, 66 licenses. Um, so she kind of introduced that to me. Um, my mom is also like very uh, she loves Anne Rand and she uh, was like giving me the wealth of nations when I was like 13 and then i'm not what kidding child, adam smith what ch- and i Rand, what childhood reading man that's like the i'm not kidding like yeah she would give me she gave me atlas shrugged when i was like 16 and i guess that's 16 that's okay yeah. at 16 maybe it could be more of a self-help book a little bit you know inspirational sure that's the thing about things for things to be like pull yourself up and inspirational it has to present a world that's really shitty underneath all inspirational shit has to be a dystopian world if my vision of the future or what i wanted was a utopia i could never explain it to you in an inspirational way because it'd just be good there'd be nothing to overcome the more inspirational something sounds the more awful it has to be (laughs) well if you're describing like a a utopian future that could be inspirational and then you're like saying everyone let's gather around so we can get across the bridge to that yeah that's inspirational maybe that's true but if you're talking about things as they are and you're trying to explain things right now as inspirational then there has to be a big divide from where you are to where you want to be yeah so then where you are has to be this dystopia where you want to be is much better even in that example you're giving about the future then where we are right now isn't so good and the future has to be a lot better. But th- for there to be inspiration, there has to be a huge gap from one end to the other end. That makes what sense. I'm saying. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> I'm just thinking if somebody gave me Atlas Shrugged at eight years old, it might have been very <laughs> a very scary book. I'd be like, what? <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So she gave you more of the idea of securing your future through accumulation of wealth. Right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and through not through just being self-reliant. But then who showed you how to actually use the website? How 
I just, I mean, I'm a child of like the internet. Like I just grew up using it. So I just kind of figured it out myself. Um, I don't think my parents would have shown me like how to set up an account. Like if I asked or anything, because they would not have wanted me to necessarily like get into it. Cause it is, it comes with risks and all of these other things. Um, so I just kind of figured it out. So your mom had more of the financial background and more of a, maybe a libertarian bent. Yeah. And then basically all your dad did was just create the account for you. Yeah. I know. Okay. <laughs> and then the rest, you just kind of figured it out on your own. Right. Yeah. But they were aware that you were kind of studying this stuff and trading. Yeah. Um, and then I, they really became aware. I think after maybe about like six months in, I had like a really good return. Um, I don't remember what it was, but it was like beating the S&P by like double. And I was like, guys, look at this. And then they kind of were like, whoa, okay, that's pretty cool. So that's kind of a weird twist, right? Going from acting to becoming a trader. <laughs> Did you enjoy acting all the time and working on a set all the time and the people you met? Or what is Hollywood like? Because especially now it kind of has this, I guess it, it always was sleazy, but we're <laughs> becoming more aware of it now. What's your experiences and memories of growing up in Hollywood? Not sleazy at all, actually. Um, I I could see that there were parts of the uh, business and there are people uh, in the industry who were that, but that's definitely not the whole thing. That's only a just I guess part of it and not it wasn't a part that I was ever really involved in um I just got to meet a lot of really very smart people and smart actors and uh, creative people um and I enjoyed it a lot the thing about acting though is you don't have a lot of control you're just always like told where to be and at what time and you're sort of at the whim of everyone else um so I think that I wanted uh wanted to like a break away from that or just to explore not spend all your time doing that yeah exactly you said you never was on set with another actor who was a complete asshole or anything like that no i've no never have had that uh experience i've met people uh at different events who are like not uh who are kind of like that it's kind of for us who didn't grow up acting it seems like kind of an unusual experience in that what I wonder about is, okay, if I grew up acting and I'm always playing different characters and I'm doing that so early in my life and my adolescence is a time where I'm supposed to figure out who I am as an individual, what is that like? Because you're always playing, how do you know who you are? How do you know, or is that something you're still kind of like, is that part of your Gen Z struggles is trying to understand who you are now? That is definitely part of my Gen Z struggles. Um yeah, I um, I for a while just thought like, oh, I guess I don't have like a, a a personality. Like I can be anyone. Like I could be anything. Like what? Why is everyone so focused on defining themselves or like trying to you know be something, be anything? So I just kind of like let go of that. Um, so I think that that like I definitely experienced um, teenage years very differently because of that. But um, everyone that I kind of knew growing up was very interested in uh, money and the hierarchy. And everyone was very aware of money uh, growing up. And they would define themselves by like how much they make. There was a pecking order based on money. Definitely. Ah. Definitely. So the underlying thing is always money, yeah. even in the creative field. 
Yeah. I, I think we all know that, but it's like you're verifying. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So it's always about who's getting paid more. Uh, your level of success in this isn't about how good of work you put out, but like how much you're making as a creative. Yeah, that's definitely how it felt. And then you transition from there to more of the financial world. And then from there, how did you get known to even give a TED Talk? Because you created a separate notoriety for yourself. Right, yeah. That wasn't even related. Maybe people in the financial world didn't even know that you act. So how did that come about? Basically, I so I had finished high school. I tested out, started day trading. Um, and my parents came to me and said, like, everyone your age is in school. They're writing, they're reading, they're learning. Uh, and you are now not. You're, you're only trading. You need to be doing something that is... You know, something where you're you're still learning and you're you're writing, or uh, I don't even know what to call that, but you need to do something other than just trading. Uh, so my mom was like, "You you should write about this. You should uh, on the internet just start a blog about investing, and then you'll be practicing writing and all of these other things." And so I did that for about a year and a half, and then um, kind of out of nowhere, uh, it just got picked up by CNBC and. Mm. Uh, Business Insider and all of these. What year was that? That was 2013 was when it kind of got. That was still when like blogs were still a thing. I think now yeah. we're post reading at this point. People don't yeah. want to read anymore. But, yep. Yeah. But yeah, that was still blogs were big back then. And then so from there you got picked up and then you've been on talk shows to talk about financial stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like Fox Business or CNBC. So I was on there a couple of times. Um, and from there, uh, the blog just got more. Uh, notoriety and then so you became kind of a young person's financial guru yeah yeah exactly but would you say even your followers are mostly young people or are they assorted ages or they're uh, or is it like creepy old men or (laughs) yeah it actually was more at first because more first what (laughs) it was creepy old men at first because thanks to cnbc that's mostly their like viewing audience so that was like what (laughs) 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 that was what i got a lot of at first um and then I, I think because of the image of the blog and the way it looked and felt and read, I got more young people, thankfully, who are interested in it. Um, and also as I got older, like 18, 19 is when more people my age were interested in that. Because I wouldn't think young people are that interested in financial stuff. Not below like 16, 17, not really. So no. that's been kind of your signature move, like in pro wrestling, <laughs> like that's what you would get people with. Yeah, signature move. Like her equivalent of the Stone Cold Center. I got it, I got it. So that's been like your calling card, right? Is talking to young people and trying to get them interested in investing and planning for the future. Yes, exactly. Was there ever any push or thought on your own of you going to college or no? That was never discussed. That, yeah, it was just never really... I had decided at a young age, like I just wanted to be out of school as soon as possible. Uh, Maybe not like done with... Uh, learning or um, independently studying things just done with being uh, I I don't think that I learn best in that environment and uh, I just didn't want to yeah I wasn't interested in that yeah a lot of what I'm hearing from you it sounds like what Jacob Wool wanted to be but he took a very dark turn who Jacob have you heard about Jacob oh no who's this dude oh no man so imagine everything that Rachel said so far, but imagine you think, well, how can I fuck this up? How can I make way more money? How can I deceive people? 
So one of the things he did was when he was still in high school, he convinced people that he had 10 years of experience as a trader, which is impossible because he's 18. And he recently got, I guess, infamous because he had some sort of attempt to defame Mueller and his investigation. Uh huh. So, but he got his start in the finance world. And pretending, he, right? Pretending. That he was the kid who pretended to be a Wall Street whiz, right? Correct. Yeah. So that's kind of the bizarro story of rachel it's like wow i'm hearing what he claims to have been i remember this and now. tries to be <laughs> but isn't yeah i know you know what i got from that whole scandal was more that this kid was just like any other kid on reddit or 4chan he just knew how to put shit online right more the adults are so stupid it's they don't understand <laughs> internet yet like that people could post whatever they want on the internet and claim whatever they're like oh it's on the internet it must be real <laughs> Yeah, but it's one of those things where if you dig into anything that he's written or has posted about and did 10 minutes of research, you're like, this is bullshit. You don't know what you're talking about. But with Rachel, it would be, well, how did you get your start? Oh, that makes sense. Oh, I see it. Oh, your dad set it up. Yeah, I believe it. <laughs> so it's on the philosophical side. If you use a razor, it's like, okay, yeah, seems legit. Well, he was making bigger claims too. He wasn't just saying he self-taught himself. He was like... I'm a hedge fund manager for like millions and billions of dollars. Yeah, yeah. That he was like a child prodigy and he was working for big companies or something, right? Yeah. And it's, bro, do you even have a driver's license? (laughs) I don't believe you. Not not even a little bit. And he fooled his teachers. Yeah. How does that work? Which is, I think, further proof that maybe school isn't all that great. It's like, you're supposed to teach me? How much money did you lose? He defrauded his principal out of tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah, I actually, I knew Jacob. Um, really? Yeah, he, uh, we both, um, I met him through this one company that I was working with in Chicago called Tasty Trade. They're like this options. They teach people how to trade options. Um, and they had brought me out there to sort of work with them on uh, just different shows and series for teaching people futures and options trading. Um, and they were also working with him at the time. And so we had met there. But um, yeah, he's every bit as um, bizarre in person as he is online. Did you get that sense right away from meeting him that this kid is weird? Not just weird, but might be full of shit? Yes. Not even a question. Yeah. So you as a young person got that right away. Yeah. And all these older people are like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. He's on the internet. That yeah. means something. I think it's the older people, like you said, who get fooled, who don't know any better. Who they say, if it's on the internet, it must be true. And they don't know how to really look at it and be like, wait, who you created this site. This isn't legit. <laughs> you just bought a Squarespace account. No. All the fears old people had what, what video game would do to our brain happened to their brain with Fox News. Yes. <laughs> like, it's going to fry your brain. It's like, yeah. no, dude, <laughs> your brain got fried watching that shit. And it's also something that they never learned while they were in school. And if they don't do a lot of independent research and reading, then it's easy for them to get suckered into certain things. If you compare something like the cryptocurrency market, where there's a few legitimate players and there's a lot of scam artists out there. So if you don't know any better, you're going to get suckered in like BitConnect. (laughs) (laughs) BitConnect! Hey, hey. Yeah, that guy. Whatever happened to him? (laughs) Is he still around? I hope not. My wife still doesn't believe in me. I'm telling him, Bohani, listen, this is real. No, 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 no. That's a scam. And I said, but wait, I'm going to go to the bank. I'm going to get my Bitcoins. I'm going to actually put it into dollars. Here, they're right on the table. 
No, that's money that you took from another account. I'll say, what am I going to do? You know, it's like the first generation of drivers where they most of their life were riding horses and then they got to learn how to drive later on. And so they were the worst drivers because half their life was on a horse. It was only after they died off that people got better at driving. And then, you know, it had to kind of keep improving, improving only after the generation of all the people who wouldn't wear seatbelts died off. (laughs) Now everybody wears seatbelts. So it's kind of like the same thing with internet. You got all these people who grew up on, I don't know, there's a lot of people who grew up on black and white TV now trying to figure out the internet. So does that mean you can only learn stuff when you're young? Or does that mean that like people when when you're young, that's when you learn the best? I don't even think it's that. I think of it as more like a picture. And there's only so much information that could go in there. So their picture is mostly already full of how to work antenna rabbit ears on a black and white TV. And so it's already full of that stuff. There isn't that much more room to learn about the internet. Can't they just clear that out though? I disagree. I think you talked about it in your other podcasts where Must you, triumph. you really delve into okay, you have to learn principles of certain things before you understand them. And when you understand them, you can then get better. If you compare it to fighting, let's say, if you just learn punches and kicks, that's not part of a system. If you learn striking, you're going to have to learn footwork comes before everything else. How balanced are you? Are you in a state where you're going to throw a strike and be thrown off balance? And you learn timing, you learn distance, you learn how to move your head. You have to learn all these other little principles that add up to become much better. So when you're learning new technology, you have to understand from the ground level where, well, what is this trying to improve? Is it actually working? Is it too jumbled around the side? This might not be what it claims to be. And then you can say, hey, I don't know if this is the right way to go, as opposed to this is just confusing. I don't get it. People do that with boxing where they hit a heavy bag and says, I know how to box. Like, you know how to punch a stationary object. You know how to send a text message. Yeah. (laughs) You don't know shit, though. (laughs) So that's exactly it. So I think it's not that you you do, I believe, learn the best when you're younger. But I think if you learn the principles of learning itself, you get better. When you had to learn to day trade, you didn't just click buttons and say, this is going up, I'm going to buy, this is going down, I'm going to sell. You probably learned the principles of, okay, what makes a good stock? What am I looking for? Okay, I think this is a solid way to understand things and make good decisions in the future. But people, if they never learned that, because it's not taught in school, it's not something that their parents might really delve into them. It could just be, be a good person, be kind to others. Which is great. They're not even good at that. (laughs) Yeah. So it's one of those things where it might have just been something told, but not practiced. So what chance they have of actually making good sound decisions, good sound decisions financially, if they can't make even good personal decisions? I think back to what you said a second ago, um, I learned principles before I, uh, or I learned some things before I, some fundamentals about like what makes a good stock before I really got into it. But a lot of it was actually uh, learning through doing it and just learning through practice and then uh, less sort of like memorizing stuff or or reading concepts and more just learning from experience and just being in it. Um, that makes sense. Losing money is a good way to <laughs> <laughs> learn a lesson. Yeah, it is actually. It is. That's why I feel like everybody should gamble because gambling most of the time you're going to be a loser and you need that 
actually, I used to think that was that applied to everybody losing some money gambling and you would learn a lesson, but some people just get addicted and they don't learn any <laughs> lesson other than I like this. I'm going to keep losing more money. But with that said, losing money or even in martial arts, getting hit is a great teacher in like what not to do. But what you were saying earlier about school not being your thing, that's kind of a common thing that we're hearing more and more of, I think, is even the politicians are saying maybe college isn't right for everybody, you know, and especially I think people after my generation and even my generation and, and more and more after is like, maybe school isn't the best way. There's a lot of different ways I can go. I could just learn how to code or I could learn how to be an Instagram star or whatever. And people are kind of starting to think, oh, there's a way to live without having to go the traditional path. With that said, you didn't go a traditional path. Was there ever a concern that, oh shit, I'm going to go this other way, not the college become a lawyer way where, you know, I work for a company, I get paid. You have to figure out your own way to make money, which is exciting and different. But there's a reason why that's going against the tide because, because the tide is like the most proven way to make a living for yourself. So was there some fear at the beginning? You know, I'm a young person, not going the traditional path of college, getting a job. Because I guess for you, you already didn't go a traditional path anyway. Yeah, I think it was, um, I wish I had that much like wherewithal at the time to have been such a like discerning decision maker. It was kind of like uh, all of a sudden I was a certain age and I kind of realized like, oh, well, I tested out of high school and uh, I'm not really like on my way to going to college. And well, I guess this is it. Like it was kind of like this is this is like the only way that I have kind of I don't like I can't really like, okay, I could, you know, figure out how to go to college or whatever. But when I was younger, I didn't uh, I thought that it was like my only uh, option was to kind of just go this really untraditional way because of how I grew up. But didn't feeling like you only had one path left for you give you any anxiety? Like, what if trading goes bad for me? What if uh, trying to live in a non-traditional way financially doesn't work out? Because you basically have to figure out a way to pay for yourself. Yeah. It isn't like, you know, a company is going to just give you a salary for showing up nine to five. It definitely did at first. Um, and then when I don't know, just you start to realize like you can do it and that it's working out and that everything's fine and you kind of figure out how to survive no matter what, then it's, you know, it gets easier. Yeah, I don't want to put thoughts in your head, but was there ever something in the back of your mind that says, you know what, school's always going to be there. It's not like UCLA has, oh, by 2020, we're closing the doors, no more new students. That came into my mind, but I, I also, I didn't want to resort to that. Like, I just didn't want, because I knew that, again, learning in that way wasn't uh, a good way for me to just grow as a as a person, I wouldn't have really absorbed the information as well. Um, so I didn't, I just didn't want to do that and then go the traditional way because it just didn't seem like a very, I don't know, it didn't seem like a, it, the best way to live, I guess. It's I wanted to find other ways. Going this other way and not going the traditional path of college, it makes life much more open-ended for a young person. It's more freeing in a way. It's more freeing, but at the same time, like if I went to this job, I'm not highlighting that jobs are great. I'm just talking about psychologically, if I go to this job and then from there I can move to this position and I can move to this position there. And even college is an increment from 
high school to working life, especially if you're a white collar person, that is a nice transition into it. But now you don't have these incremental transitions, then it could be anything. It's completely open-ended. Are you supposed to be a billionaire? Are you supposed to be really famous? Did that give you more pressure as a young person? Like, cause you're not done being a young person, right? So like to be more perfect, because I feel like a lot of the stuff geared for younger people to, especially if you don't go to school, you're learning through YouTube, Instagram, these books, podcasts, you have to be hyper productive, hyper fit, you know, hyper good looking, hyper rich. You just have to be successful in all these different ways. And I don't think I felt that pressure when I was in my 20s. Yeah, because you, there's no... Uh... Yeah, I'm not like checking off boxes and everyone else is sort of like checking off these incremental boxes and I'm just kind of, I don't have any, uh, any foundation sort of in that way. Yeah, there's like a, there's like an internal sort of, I guess, anxiety to like do more and be more and work harder and like. Because uh, you never yeah, have a reference point, right? To know what you did was good enough. Yeah, exactly. It's never really good yeah, enough. If definitely. the sky's the limit then you're always comparing it to the sky, <laughs> yeah. then nothing's ever going to be as good as right. the sky, right? Yeah. Yep. There's more depression with young people, more anxiety, more suicides. So it makes me wonder, where is this coming from? You know, you always hear these stories, especially with young men, all this anger, and then they go do something very violent. But I think that's just one way it shows itself. But do you feel that when you're around other people your age or your generation, this kind of like... I think that because of like the internet and because we see so many possibilities, we know all of what's possible, uh, all of what we can be, um, even for people who are yeah checking off like incremental boxes and who are like making small steps, they feel that pressure more now too, I think, that that's just across the board, something we all want to like live up to and be as, like you said, like as great as the sky, but... Not knowing that that's like not really uh, possible, I guess. Paul, like for you, when you graduated college or even after high school, did you feel a lot of pressure? I got to be a millionaire or I got to be a fucking tech guru or I got to be this or I got to be that. It still wasn't that bad when I was transitioning from high school to college. And when I graduated college, it just so coincided with the recession of 08, 09. So for a lot of people my age, it was just more of find something to do or find some form of work because it's just tough all around. People were getting laid off and the only ones that they were hiring for, quote unquote, were internships. It's like, well, OK, I still have loans to pay back. What do you want me to do? And I think social media was still burgeoning. It still wasn't there. So in 05 and 09, when I graduated high school and college, respectively, the only big one there was Facebook and then the rest were no longer there like the blogs like you had your own personal whether it was Zanga or live journal live journal so that was big when I was in high school and by the time I finished college in 09 Facebook was still there but there wasn't an Instagram there was no Snapchat there was no WeChat or all these other applications that you have where you can instantaneously share stories or post statuses of what you were doing. And the iPhone was just taking off, but it still wasn't there quite yet. So I wasn't constantly inundated with, this is what I'm doing. This is what so-and-so is doing. This is where so-and-so used to be. This is where, this is how much so-and-so is making. 
So it wasn't as much pressure. And because everyone around me was suffering, it was just easier to say, well, okay, as long as I can try to get by, I'm doing all right. Well, so much of it is like when you become an adult, because when I got out of college, it was like between the transition from Clinton to Bush. So under Clinton, the generation before me actually did really well because under that time period, the economy was growing a lot. And then during my graduation and during that transition, actually the job market and things like that wasn't looking so great. So a lot of people I knew, they stayed in college. They went five years and some people even longer because they wanted to make sure they had a job when they got out. I don't know if that's the best way to do it, but that was very normal for people my age where staying in college for undergrad for an extended period of time wasn't that weird or even graduating with a double major or a major and a minor. But then the first couple of years were rough and then we went on that huge real estate boom. So everybody I knew started working in real estate and eventually I joined in there too. And then you know where that went, it went straight to the uh, real estate bubble crash. So that's about when you graduated from college and it was a really bad time. And now you as an adult right now, Rachel, actually you're still in that time. People look at the stock market and there's been a stock market bull run for a while, but that's not the best way to look at it because also you're coming in the time of the gig economy. It's really hard, I think, right now for a young person to make a living off of one job. Student loans are really high. Rent is way higher. There's less unemployment, but the average salary is really low in relative comparison to the past. So everybody feels like they have to have five or six hustles going right now, right? Yeah. yeah so everybody has to just be working 24-7. Yeah. Just to pay for life. Yeah. Do you find that in your own life that you're constantly having to look for things to do, work 24-7? Yeah. And and a lot of it is just like making sure you like keep up like your network of people so that you always have those opportunities so that you can always like find new opportunities and uh, I don't know, better opportunities or uh, for your work. Uh, you're in like everyone, even your friends are like part of your network and part of like your work, uh, your work group. Because when I was young, the way you apply for a job was you would just go ask for an application and you fill it out, you gave your resume and then that was it. And then later on when I was in college and post-college, you had job boards like Monster or Craigslist and you applied that way. But now it seems like the only way you could get a job is through network, whether it's LinkedIn or through people you know. So everybody I know, even my age now, has to constantly do that stupid networking thing where... <laughs> Not networking, like going somewhere and meeting people, but more like everybody they know, they have to constantly try to keep in touch with them and make sure they know who they are and remember them. And that's how you get jobs is through yeah. people you know and referrals and whatever. It's You have to play that kind of social game now. It's a lot more political, yeah. Even, even amongst your friends, it's like a lot more political. There's a lot less just like chilling out amongst people. But I think that... Um, you get to actually know people the best and you strengthen your like network the most when you are just like chilling out and just like hanging out with people kind of like, I guess like this. I'm curious, Sam, what was your first job or first job you're willing to share? First job out of college or just in general, first job you had where you got a paycheck and you're like, wow, I made it. I'm balling. Yeah. My first job was, well, I worked since I was young for like different family members who had, you know, businesses 
typical Korean story where you work for one of your family members or whatever. But first real official job, I was working at Target. Okay. And uh, doing the Target thing, <laughs> you know? The Target thing. With the red shirt and white pants. <laughs> All great people had their start at Target. All great people? I didn't All know great. That. That's like. It's like Harvard. You know how like so many people, Harvard has all these great dropouts that became, you know, successful, whatever. Same thing with Target. They're, Did you just pick a red color and just go with it? They they just hired me. That's it, man. That was it. I was doing the Target cashier thing. I had the fucking gun with the laser on it. But if you had a network, you could have used your network at the time. to. I had no network. Yeah. My network could only get me jobs at my other family members' stores. <laughs> Actually, my first job out of college was at a talent agency, which is why I know not just through the talent agency, but also living in L.A. through the periphery or people, you know, you learn a lot about Hollywood. But I was also on the ground floor of the behind the scenes of how contracts work, how negotiations worked, how the paperwork and the legal stuff to make a show worked. So mm-hmm. I got a good feel for that. But what I thought was only relegated to Hollywood, the stupid networking bullshit is now the world. Everybody has to do the stupid networking thing. And one of the things I hated about working in Hollywood was you couldn't really make friends. Everybody you met was all about, oh, what can this person do for me? It's all transactional. It's all about, you know, I'm really meeting you because I'm not really trying to make a friend. I'm just trying to network so that maybe you could get me a job later or you can do something for me later. And now it looks like the whole world is Hollywoodized where everybody has to do that just to get a job at an office. But there's, a, I think there's another way around that um, which is not really talked about that much, but because of the internet, um, it's almost like y- you can develop a, I don't know, a show or a podcast or a project or whatever, have no network and just put it out constantly and over time make it really good. And then, you know, you didn't need a network. You just did it yourself. And then like, that's like another way I hope that people sort of start to realize is an option and that you don't have to just network and use people and well, that is possible. Yeah. And that is plausible, but that is still kind of the outlier, right? For you to create something where, you know, it's this idea anybody could be an Instagram star, but really anybody, it still filters out where they don't have gatekeepers like Hollywood to filter you out. Gatekeeper as in, you know, this executive right. or this assistant for this person. Now the gatekeeper is the wisdom of the crowd. And the bigger the crowd is, the easier access you have to go those non-traditional paths. So perhaps you already had a little bit of notoriety because of your acting. So it made your blog more famous because if somebody Googled your name, maybe your blog would come up, right? Sure. And so if I have a huge network of friends on Facebook, let's say, and a lot of them are also influencers and I release a podcast and they start sharing it, it's much more likely to grow. Whereas if you're somebody who's not known by anybody, yes, it is plausible that it could blow up, but is it likely? No. It's called a plausibility bias. Just because it's plausible doesn't mean it's going to happen. Yeah. I think especially young people fall into that bias because they see it on Instagram and they see it on YouTube and it looks possible and it is possible. They've proven it's possible, but they don't think of it like a gambler where there's like, what's the odds? They can't tell if it's one out of 50 or one out of 50 million. It all looks the same. Yeah. 
Sure. I think that if they just break it down and look at like what goes into making something like why is this, I don't know, podcast or this thing, why is it good? What makes it good? And then study the elements of like what makes something really good. And then just like making, just like working on the uh, the craft of it. And I know that kind of maybe sounds like soft or whatever, but I think that like just if you don't look, like if you just ignore the odds and you just like, I don't know, is that making sense or? It does. And I think that's kind of not to pick on you, but I think that's the thing that a lot of people buy into is that, oh, if you just got to, you know, work really hard at it. Yeah. And you do a good product and it'll be found. Yeah. But then it's like, what's the point of PR firms? What's the point of marketing? What's the point of advertising? Actually, none of those things need to exist if that all that happens, because we would have a natural democratized way where the best thing would just rise to the top. But it doesn't. Quality is a factor, but it's multi-factor. There's so many other factors that go into it. So let's say me and this other guy are equally skilled at boxing. But if that other guy is equally skilled as me and bigger, then he has the advantage because it's like, you know, if we use video game stats, we're both plus 50 to fighting. Plus, he gets an extra 100 for his size. Then it's 150 versus 50. Right. You but you fight him and then you get so much better from just fighting him, even if you don't win. Like, And he and gets then, better from fighting me also. Sure. So then we both got plus 25. There you go. Then he's still ahead of me. <laughs> but so what? Like, at least you're at least you're not where you were. You're like, you're up 25 now, too. But if he goes up 25 also, then it's still relatively the same thing. Yeah, but. The gap is still the same. Mm-hmm. It's still tough because we were talking a lot about the outliers. So when people just look up, okay, who are people who are very young, who have had success in the financial markets? You either get a Rachel Fox or a Jacob Wolves. Like, is there anyone in between? It's hard to say because they're not the ones that really pop up when you do a Google search. But I understand that if it was that easy, more people would do it. And there's a lot of factors that have to go into play for it to work. You look at someone like Justin Bieber, who... The person who found him just so happened to be scrolling through YouTube, clicked on one of his videos and said, this kid's really good. I want to bring him out. So a lot of things have to go into play for all the skills to be found. You look at Harrison Ford, who quit acting and who was doing cabinets in George Lucas's house. And then he just so happened to say, hey, I need somebody to come in and fill in for this role. And he said, yeah, sure. I'm free this Saturday. And boom, he got Han Solo. Same thing happened with Mel Gibson and Mad Max. He was supposed to be an extra because when he dropped off his friend for an audition, he got into a bar fight the night before. He was all fucked up. He had black eyes and bruises. And they said, hey, you look really fucked up. You want to come back next week and be an extra? It's like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And in between that time, his face healed up and he was still 1970s Mel Gibson. Super handsome. So when he came back, they're like, yeah, actually, do you want to be the main star? And I was like, sure, I'll do it. So a lot of things still have to fall into play. It's a lot of luck. But I think that if you like, I found that any time that I've had like felt uh, depressed or, or anxious in my life, the way to get over that and cure that is just to sort of like the example you just brought up, just Justin Bieber, just putting shit out. Nobody, mm -hmm. it's possible no one maybe ever could have ended up seeing it and nothing would have ever happened, but he was just doing that. And he like, I think that if everyone just just tries and just kind of goes in that direction anyway. I think you kind of 
and you don't expect anything to like work out or whatever you just do it anyway like regardless of the results i think that that's a lot more uh, will come of that for you than you know you you realize and if you like focus on the odds too much you might get you know just discouraged yeah or like you just might never no that's absolutely true and it's not to say that you shouldn't work hard or you shouldn't continue to go on the grind but it's also one of those things where you should still do that because it's like the old adage the harder you work the luckier you get yeah, so you still yeah, need to do sure. the work. You can't just say, I hope my big break comes through because you might get breaks along the way. But if you're not prepared or if you're not good, then it's going to be meaningless. Yeah. Mel Gibson technically got his big break because he was still a decent enough actor and he still had good looks. But if he sucked at acting and he was only a pretty face, I'm like, eh, maybe not. Maybe you should still be an extra. And I know within the fight world, a uh, popular blogger, Jack Slack, got his start by posting a lot of breakdowns on internet forums. He just did screenshots of t- certain fighters, and then he did that PowerPoint style of pointing an arrow to certain f- foot placements and hand strikes. And it says, you notice here, he drops his hand every time he does a third combination. And over time, people said, this is really good. And then he got picked up by different outlets like Bleacher Report, SB Nation, and then Vice Sports actually gave him his own column. And then afterwards, he was so good that Conor McGregor's people contacted him about writing his biography. So it's one of those things he kept writing. He didn't stop. And the more he did it, the more opportunities came up. If he just started doing it a little bit and he stopped and he says, well, I hope somebody reads the past work I've done, then it wouldn't have mattered. But the more he kept plugging away at it, the more opportunities came up. All right. But that's him as an individual. Wait, what is your ultimate point with this? Because you're giving the exception. But are you saying most people should follow the exception? I think you should still continually work hard and consistently at what you want your craft to be. But you also have to realize a lot of breaks have to come along the way and you may never get them. And you have to accept that as a possibility. So if you place that as the place marker, you keep giving these examples of Mel Gibson, Jack Slack, whoever, right? And then you remake that the place marker, right? And then the ones who survive and get there, I actually can't even make an argument that they'll be happy because a lot of times they're not even happy either. But all the other people that you place that arbitrary thing and they don't make it, how will they handle that that they never make it? It's a fucked up system. I'm well, just wait, saying. No, no, I think that it's more like uh, it's it's just you'd have to ignore the idea of making it or not making it. It, it is within like just doing the the work and that sort of consistency that you find like peace of mind and uh meaning like and and it's like within the trying that you get better that you better yourself yeah so you just try to be the outlier and then that's life then that's just then then like but we're complicated beings like right now you could say that and maybe a lot of people also think that you know they're reading an article maybe whatever paul was talking about they're reading an article about that and they're like oh yeah 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 I got to be like that. I, if, if, I got to work hard. And if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But that's like one of the many snapshots you'll have in a day or in your life. So that happens to be just a snapshot where we've caught this person in a reasonable moment. And then there'll be that other time at night. They're fucking can't sleep. And they're like, fuck, I'm a fucking loser. <laughs> Does that mean that they're not the same person? No, that same person can have that moment of clarity where they're like, oh, okay, this is how I'm going to be. But what I'm saying is, that other time will also exist. And actually, when you place those arbitrary markers of success, like you have to do this, 
yeah, those moments where you could be very zen about it will appear. But I think over time, it's less frequent and you'll have more of those times where you're just bummed out. So yes, it's plausible that you can be <laughs> zen about it that way, but it's way more plausible that people will have all these other times where they're super down about it. Actually, I was reading this study about suicide and it was all about these people. They were studying for a very long period of time. They had surveyed these people who had gone to the hospital for suicide. And for a big majority of them, they were in the hospital for attempted suicide. And that, that day had been the first day that they had ever thought about it. And some people were in the hospital and they had only thought about suicide 30 minutes before they tried it. So my point is, is that setting lofty goals is not going to lead you to suicide. It's more of a black swan effect, which is we're talking about economics, right? Is that one moment of down is way more powerful than all those other moments of being clear or up. So when we give these arbitrary advice to young people, I don't think we think about the psychological effects that it leaves on them. You can only feel that sort of down, uh, you only you can only feel that sort of down if you set those expectations like and if you really like hold on to them and like grip onto them but if you just like don't I don't know if you don't like have some expectation of who you should be or where you should be you just kind of again like you just try to be uh you just go the the outlier path then I don't know, maybe this is not true, but I feel like that suicidal or that depression goes away when you don't set, when you just let go of the expectations. Yeah, that's uh, theoretical. But in actual practice, can most people do that? I think, well. I know a lot of young people like this where they're like, every morning I'm going to wake up and do two hours of yoga and then I'm going to do my fucking meditation. Then I'm going to take all these supplements to like biohack myself so I have ultimate energy and I'm going to do this and this and whatever. And it's like, why do you need all that extra unless you're fucking really desperate to reach something, right? Yeah. And that same person who's doing all that inspiration porn is the same person who's like, be very zen about it. It's like, well, bro, if you're that zen about it, why do you need all that extra shit? right? You just be cool with what you already had. And then if you had extra naturally, because you just tend to be a hard worker, then you'll be cool with that too. But obviously, when you're telling people to be zen about this shit, after doing all that hacking bullshit, are you really telling us, the reader, or are you telling yourself? And I often find that I think they're telling themselves. They're telling themselves I should be okay with what I got. Because then later on, you read about these people who are these, you know, super high productivity slash Zen monks. And then they tell you all this time, I've been dealing with really deep depression. Like Tim Ferriss finally admitted that he deals with really deep depression. You know what I mean? I'm not saying that depression is a sensitive thing. Maybe he, his story to his depression is completely chemical or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. But then how do I also know that all that biohacking shit isn't the chemicals in his brain that makes the depressive, makes him aim for all that shit too? How do I know that's not the depressive mind talking about that? Yeah. So even if he says, oh, no, 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 this doesn't make my depression worse. It's completely chemical. Then, bro, that works two ways. And that means it's completely chemical why you want to do all these things in the first place also. And that might not be your better nature wanting to do those things. Hmm. Especially 
with young people you hear about because they're always drinking like super caffeinated energy drinks and a lot of them are taking like prescription medication, all these things to be like hyper productive. But what's the point? If you can accept yourself truly for who you are, then why isn't who you are okay? I think that people can maybe, when it comes to like things like that, uh, you can't like be doing those things unless you've already like let go of any expectation. Cause if, if doing what things like chugging Red Bull and pulling all nighters and like, or doing the other thing and like doing all of the like biohacking and all of that crazy stuff, they're clearly all still holding on to like some expectation. But, um, not just some expectation. It seems like very high expectation. Right. It's not like, oh, I go home yeah. and I just need a beer. And that's enough. It's like I go home and I need all this other shit. Yeah. And that's still not enough. Right. But then so the the solution is or what would help is just letting go of that expectation. Just or whatever expectation you've set. And then again, just continuing to plug away at your at your shit. And I know that like the common thing is that most people when they plug away, they fall into those traps. But then letting go is not a one time thing. It's like you let go truly. Right. Yeah. But then the next day you, you got to do let it again. Go again. Yeah. You got to like be letting go 24 yeah, seven. Exactly. Yeah. People think it's like a one time thing and you're done. But right. it's like, no, no, being truly goalless and just doing your practice, whatever it is. And this is something that right. is brought up a lot in martial arts. You can't just let go once. You got to be constantly letting go. And that's why in the martial arts back in the old days, meditation was such a big part of it. But that's the thing. It's like, yeah, regular people. When they're faced with all those aspirations, they can let go, but letting go once isn't enough. And they're not constantly in a state of letting go. They're probably more often in a state of wanting more and desire than of letting go. Right. But that can change with practice. You hope. I mean, yes, <laughs> it can change. That's what I completely agree with. It is something that can change. Will it change as a gambler? Is that where I'm going to put my money? No. Well, is it more like the odds of gambling or is it more like the odds of the stock market, which are in your favor? Like, So stock market is a great example. You as an individual actor only have so much control. The rest of it is controlled by the market. Right. Actually, you're always at the whim of the market. You're just hoping you're on the right side of the deal. But with this type of individual actor stuff of your own life and decisions, we think it's completely in our power. When just like the stock market, it's like our environment. So much of what happens to us, we're at the whim of our environment. So I think, especially like people who are libertarians of finance, they could understand that with the market, we're at the whim of the market. But yet in the world, in life, they think they have complete control over their life. It's like the system doesn't need to change. You just need to change. If you're failing, it's your fault. It's what you did. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas in the stock market, yeah, you could have made the wrong call, but ultimately you're still at the whim of the market. If the market is moving this way or that way, it is what it is. But in life, a lot of those same people can't understand that's also the way it works. And for that to change, sometimes society needs to change or the world needs to change. Wait, what do you mean like society needs to change or the world needs to change? Like, let's say somebody wanted to lose a lot of weight. You could only make so many choices as a person, but if you're always in a society that 
pushes you towards eating more or it's an obese society, then it makes it really hard for that individual actor to be skinny, especially if they tend to put on weight anyway. And now maybe one person can, but if I took a big enough sample size, then it starts to level out. And because those individuals have to be the outlier or the exception. Otherwise, if every person could do that, then the new context of the environment would no longer be obese people. It would just be a skinny society. If I had a hundred people and every one of them individually lost weight and now all 100 lost weight and they're skinny, then we're no longer in the paradigm of an obese society, right? So that means if it always worked, then that would change the whole thing. The fact that the whole thing doesn't change is proof that not enough individuals will change. Is is that possible? Like, has that ever happened like in for anything where maybe the environment was one way, but all of the people in it like actually changed? No, no, I don't think so. It's more the other way. Like, that's why people who, let's say, move to Japan without even thinking about it, they tend to lose weight because they're now in a healthier society. Right. It's very unlikely that that one person is going to change the society to make them fatter. And you're right. a skinny person from right. Japan. You come to the U.S. There's a good chance that you might start gaining weight because then you assimilate to the society. What's interesting also in this conversation is that you were mentioning that you were given Ayn Rand and all these things when you were young. So it seems like maybe you grew up with a more of a libertarian kind of thinking. I'm Very not sure. <laughs> but this <laughs> podcast is more of a leftist podcast. Not that you can't be a libertarian on this podcast. I don't even know the way you think about yourself now. But it is also a worldview. Yeah. So wait, was your earlier question regarding has something ever worked you mean policy-wise when you change the environment and things have improved or? I, I was just asking like if, because um, we were talking about outliers, how the environment really controls so much of how we are. And, but you can be an outlier by sort of changing yourself. And I'm just wondering if, if the environment is one way and like if all of the people inside that environment could be outliers or if that has ever happened or if that's just like. Well, that wouldn't be possible because sure. by definition, an outlier has to be the exception. That is the definition of outlier. You're the one out of the circle, the outlier. You're lying outside of the circle. You're lying outside of the average. So if everybody became an outlier, that would just become the new average. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying like, what if, so like everything that we like consume, like media, all of the things around us, the stores, whatever, business and industry, that all stays the same. But all of the people, all of the people, like just separating people from things that aren't people like you take all of the people and uh, they how, change but how can you separate people from their environment because all you are is an amalgam of your genetics and your environment that's it there's no other thing yeah actually there is one way if we get into the future and there's crispr and then you just change the <laughs> dna for everybody yeah. then i guess you could have something like that but unless you severely alter their dna I don't think you could have something where people are able to act independently of their environment. Let me know if this is a good example or a bad example. So as far as policy-wise or environmental or maybe your circumstances, a country like Portugal decriminalized all drugs in 2001, I believe. And before, they used to have a pretty bad drug epidemic. 
but after they decriminalized it and instead of focusing on punitive measures such as we got to punish the criminals as well as the distributors they focused on the rehabilitation model and it drastically dropped the rate of drug crimes hiv and it's one of those things where the world hasn't really seemed to adopt it but people who die of overdoses and who are more likely to relapse has dramatically dropped in the entire country and it's one of those things where i believe a former fbi director looked at that model and thought why can't we adopt it i don't know because i don't know the drug policies in the us well enough but that might be an example of when you change the circumstances and the environment around then the people who are the outliers of well i beat drug addiction cold turkey i was able to do it by finding god or belief in my friends and family and then people say see that person did it why can't you it's like well they're the outliers it doesn't always happen because you develop such a codependence on drugs itself but when you change the environment of okay let's just change the way we think about illegal narcotics then it became focused on let's make sure that we control for the factors that made you turn to drugs in the first place and maybe that will be a much more holistic approach and that seemed to change it so that might be an example of no, you're giving her example of the opposite of what she brought up is how where you change the environment and that changes the individual. Right. She I thought that's asking, what you want. She no? was asking no, the yeah. opposite. Is there an example <laughs> where individuals just change? Like people are like, oh, I found God and that's why I quit drugs. Can that become like <laughs> contagious and then people just stop doing drugs without any policy changes? Yeah. So you gave her the opposite points like, no. What you're talking about doesn't work. Okay, we have to edit change that the out policy. Then. <laughs> right. I mean, I think for people who are on the left, they understand that to change things, you have to change as an individual, but you also have to change policies or change the environment. It's both. And so in that way, it tends to be more of a moderate approach. It's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. You got to change, sense. but the environment has to change. Where I think more on the right, it's more like, no, you just have to change. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like very much how I was raised was like that. Uh, my parents were like, uh, were more uh, just libertarian with me. Like, and I, and I think that it's made me very much like who I am in terms of being self-reliant and all of these other things. But uh, I'm kind of now starting to understand the virtue of like, of, of what you were saying and of how like, it's important to change the environment yeah i totally misread that i was like oh that's not what i wanted at all <laughs> yeah you were like surely she couldn't mean this other way that doesn't work i think that's what it meant it's like oh of one person and then everything yeah. no, no, no 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 that i don't think so <laughs> it's like one of those things where computers can only say like did you mean this you know that paper clip in word it's like it looks like you type a type of sentence but it's not cohesive yeah sometimes did I you mean this instead like on google i'll type something dyslexic and they'll correct it for me you were like auto-correcting Rachel. You're like, no, no, you must have misspoke. This is what you really meant. Well, I just understood it differently because my mind is more limited. Like, oh, no, I don't have an example. So here's an example that I have off the top of my head. Yeah. Hopefully this works. No, round pig, square hole no. doesn't go. All right, then I'm out of ideas. The only successful libertarian I could think of, and it's not even real, it's like Ron Swanson. That's what? it. A lot of like cryptocurrency people are libertarian if that gives you a better well that's the other thing though that term is so vague it's hard to understand what it even means and to each person you ask who identifies as libertarian 
it like means something different for each individual. I always find that they always spit out the same line, which is fiscally conservative, socially liberal. Uh-huh. <laughs> they always like say that same thing. And then I'm like, but what is like, what, what do you mean by that? And then they're like, I don't really know. Or like, I don't know. It's become like a popular thing. To they're say. like a they're like a non-player character in a video game where they just keep spitting out the same script over <laughs> yeah. and over. It's yeah. like if you're gay and homeless, I want you to die because you're homeless, not because you're gay. <laughs> <laughs> we have unisex bathrooms for everybody to use, but for customers only. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's essentially it. Like, hey, you shouldn't be discriminated against, but I can't hire you. Yeah. Yeah. But it's weird because I think, unfortunately, a lot of libertarian ideas and principles and maybe even some of their thinkers have been hijacked by the alt-right. Where before it just used to be a lazy's fair of like, you know what, just let people be what they are. But now when they get asked questions about religion, because they're no longer, I guess, what's the word I'm looking for? They have been co-opted by the religious right to say, well, you know, I believe in freedom of religion but there's only one true god it's one of those things where that's not what they said before but it's one of those things where people have been i don't say suckered but more or less pigeonholed there's actually been a lot of literature written about this but actually libertarian is an american term so if they're basing it off of stuff that started in europe that was just liberalism that's why we call it neoliberal new liberals uh the people like f.a hayek or Mises, those people. They were Europeans, and they didn't use that term libertarian. They used liberalism. But, oh, okay. So that's why they call Hillary Clinton neoliberal, because even the Democrats are using very policies that are very pro-business and pro-capitalistic laissez-faire type policies. And then they're just socially like, okay, whoever can marry whoever. But it's never like, Top versus down. It's always left versus right. But the bottom always loses. So you could call yourself socially liberal, fiscally conservative, and that would describe somebody like Hillary Clinton also. Or Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer. That can describe a lot of Democrats as well. But libertarian originally meant anarchist communist. That was what it originally meant. I didn't even know that. Yeah. So my point is, is that libertarian, there is no really definition of it it always has changed and it always means something different for each person so i guess in the cryptoverse maybe people you know say that shit about socially liberal fiscally conservative but it could change from person to person the point about the alt-right is because a lot of people don't know what libertarian is it's just they don't want to call themselves conservative so they just want to call themselves libertarian it's like it's no longer cool to even call yourself liberal so people call themselves progressive it's a title that they don't like anymore or they know people look down on. So they just started jumping on the libertarian bandwagon. It doesn't mean they even know what the ideology is. And even then, the ideology isn't necessarily clear. It's just a new label to represent yourself. It just happens to be that previously people who identified as libertarian tended to be white males and alt-right tends to be white males. So it was a natural overlap where it was basically white identity politics. That's why you're going to see that overlap. And I'm not the first one to talk about this. This has been well covered before. To go back to the outliers thing, I mean, there are examples where one person or one thing can change a big thing, but even that is an outlier or a black swan event where it's more rare. 
I mean, if I have a virus and I come to a country and then I can spread that virus, that's an example. Or Backpack Kid, he started that dance. And what? then the Backpack Kid, he started that dance and then it spread and then it got onto Fortnite and then everybody became aware of that dance and they call it the Fortnite dance. You know what I'm talking about? No. Where he does the thing with the arm. Oh, yeah. That was started by one kid on Instagram called the Backpack Kid. Isn't it the flossing? Yeah, yeah. The floss. The floss. It was started by one kid. So things like that can spread. But with that said, it all depends on the difficulty. Like a disease is easy to transmit. A dance, like it doesn't cost you anything to see a dance and start following it. Or if people figure out a new way to do something and it's convenient, then that might spread. But quitting drugs is extremely difficult. Losing weight is extremely difficult. Or making some kind of change where it actually costs money out of my pocket, that's really going to be difficult to get people to change. Like maybe we wouldn't even need welfare or have to talk about universal basic income if everybody donated or something, right? But that costs money. That's difficult to get people to do. If it costs nothing, yeah, then one individual can change a lot of things, especially if it's convenient and you know it might be interesting or make things better. Whenever there's increasing costs, then it's really hard for an outlier to create that change. That makes sense, yeah. I mean, I guess an outlier can create a change where they could become like a guru or something and they get followers. But even then, they have to get to a position of power where then they do a systematic change to really exert a huge amount of change, right? Yeah. So even then, they ultimately, the end game is you have to get to a point where you could change the context or change the environment. Right. But you're talking about, you brought up universal basic income a second ago, and that, um, while those like very systematic changes are, they're idealistic, it's always like the problem of like, can, the, can we economically rig this so that is even possible? And oftentimes it's just not like with a lot of these types of programs that provide for, you know, a bunch of people. Well, this would be different. Like what we have now is welfare capitalism. Universal basic income would be a step that would be different from that. The problem with welfare capitalism is the problem that right wing people keep complaining about. It's not fair. Not everybody gets it. Only certain people get it. And who gets to decide? And that's when they get into conspiracy theories about, oh, you guys are only choosing to let these people get it and these other people don't get it. But if you get it, I get it, we all get it. What are we going to complain about? We all got it. It's like in class, if everybody got candy, you're not going to complain about this person getting candy. We all got it. But in that class, if the teacher only selected certain people to get the candy, then you feel unfair. And that's tribal. That goes back to like our ape brain. Like even in chimpanzee and ape culture, they have an extreme sense of fairness where if you feel like you're ripping people off, you're ripping the tribe off, they get really upset. And to humans, that's still true. So this is different from welfare capitalism where it's only certain people get certain benefits. If everybody gets it, then people aren't going to be as upset about it. Or what's there to be upset about? Where do we get it from? The money? Yeah, who who wants to like who's going to look into the how to set that up or like like what if the teacher doesn't have enough candy for every every kid in the class? Like how then then what do we do? So with something like universal basic income 
And it's not like I'm in a position to create anything, right? So we're just spitballing here. But whether you could pay for it or not is not why I think it's a bad idea. I think there's better ways to do this. I think a Guarantees Jobs Act is much better. But I think we can do a universal basic income and we might do a very small amount of it through some kind of tax credit or something, maybe $3,000 for every person or $5,000 every person every year. Instead of giving them a living wage for every month, you give them like some kind of tax credit at the end of the year. That would be just another way to call basic income. To give everybody a living wage where they no longer have to work would cause a lot of disincentives to not work. But if it was just a little bit every year, so so much about universal basic income working or not is about how much you give. You could completely pay for this system if everybody still worked. You couldn't if people didn't work. Why I like the Guarantees Jobs Act is right now the unemployment is like 2-3%. So before people even freak out, the unemployment is already very low. So we have to just close that gap. How do we close that gap? The government can be like the ultimate temp agency where they train people to get jobs and it's incentives for companies to hire you because you don't have to spend that money training this person anymore. The government just paid for it. Now, how do we pay for all this? The lower the unemployment is, the stronger our dollar becomes because people think the value of the dollar is completely based on inflation or how much money you print. And it's not. It's based really on how productive the country is. So if the country is very productive where everybody who wants a job has a job, and if the U.S. government is the ultimate temp agency and can guarantee everybody can get a minimum wage job, and if they can't get a job with a company, then the government becomes the employer of last resort. The government constantly hires people to do minimum wage work, like menial work. They always need stuff like that. Mm -hmm. One way they've rigged it is they've used prisoners to do it and pay them nothing, which is basically slavery. That is the firefighting. uh, Yeah, there's all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah. I don't know if people should go fight fire unless they volunteer to do that or that's the job that they're signing up for. But my point is, is that there's a lot of government work that still needs to be done. And we're only talking about filling a very small gap. But if unemployment is low or it doesn't exist at all, then we become a very rich country. The problem with inflation is that people think, oh, we print more money and then it becomes devalued, right? We can't just print money at will. But how does the U.S. government pay for anything? They tax people. No. The order that things happen matters. So what happens is, Especially right now, we have a deficit. So that means we don't even have money. Any tax money goes right to the deficit. How are we paying for anything? From military to building streets to anything. We're just fucking printing money. It's just that we don't necessarily rely on the U.S. Mint to always do it. There's a lot of ways to do it. We could do quantitative easing. We could issue treasury notes. It's probably actually better to just print the money than offer bonds because at least when you print money, it's straight up. Whereas if you issue bonds and use that money, you still have to pay it back plus interest. So it's only making things worse. But my point is, is that we think we collect the tax money and we pay it. The US government in this founding didn't wait for that money to come in. They just started already spending it first. 
you're paying for stuff by printing money and then you're taxing people to get rid of some of the excess money. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. But it's almost like a big con. It's all a confidence game. So long as I'm paying taxes, I feel like, oh, okay, that's how we're paying for shit. How much we actually have to pay is very questionable because a lot of Americans still think, oh, I could pay a very little amount of taxes and we could still pay for a whole bunch of shit. Part of how we keep this going then in the global world where the rest of the world isn't like, hey, your dollar is worthless is if the country has enough work for everybody and everybody's working and productivity is high, then it's the country that's constantly producing, then your dollar is strong. You look at China and they're not getting hyperinflation, even though they're just printing money to pay for everything. But what are their people doing? They're building all these buildings that nobody lives in. You're just yeah. giving them bullshit to do. Yeah. My point is, is that we don't even have bullshit for people to do. There's a lot of real work for people to do. But if you were to even give them bullshit jobs that are completely unnecessary, like building buildings that no one's going to live in, it's still enough to keep inflation down because it's just a confidence game. Does oh that my make God. Sense? Yeah, yeah. So how are we going to pay for all this shit? We just print money and we tax it if it feels like, oh, people are like uh, questioning how much the dollar is worth. Or we'll issue some more bonds. But the advantage of a country that can print their own money, which European countries don't have with the euro, is that we can regulate how much comes in and how much we burn. So long as unemployment is low or nil, we could pay for a lot of shit. We could pay for basic income. But the problem with basic income is it might incentivize people not to work. And then if unemployment is high, then the whole thing falls apart. Right. Because you look at these countries like Venezuela or Zimbabwe or even like Germany before World War II, where the money is worthless. You're telling me that if they stop printing money, all of a sudden their economy is fixed. No, they had productivity problems. And a lot of it comes from back then early on, lack of resources. But now we're not such a resource-based economy because we have so much technology going on. Yeah, I also have an unpopular opinion because a lot of conservatives talk all the time about how government spends too much money and we need to cut back. It's one of the things I do agree with. I'd wait, wait, say wait, what, what conservatives still say that? They used to say that. Yeah. Who says that still? That the government doesn't know how to spend money well? No, 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 that they spend too much money. Who's saying that now? That's true. Okay, how about this? A lot of conservatives will talk about how government wastes a lot of the money that it's given. That's why they want to cut Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. I'd say, okay, if you want to cut spending, why don't you cut the military budget? Because right now the military budget is at $700 billion. And they recently got approved to get $61 billion more. That's $761 billion, which is closer to a trillion than it is to 500 billion. And honestly, you have to ask yourself, where is this money going towards? Because are we really safer as a country? Where is that money going? Because it's going to freedom, man. I mean, there's like a lot of, I don't know, like we we kind of live in a bubble. Like there's a lot of just, it's good that, I don't know, we're protected, I guess, in a sense. Okay, so let me ask you this. And it's not to say that I think we should defund the military or we shouldn't give them money at all. But how closely are we looking at their spending? What are they spending their money on? Because when you think of a war, what do you think 
that outcome looks like. Is it soldiers invading other countries where we reenact D-Day, where a bunch of our Marines storm the beachfronts and we take over a country by force? It's hard to say because we haven't, outside of, of course, the recent insurgencies where we go to other countries, we're in seven wars right now as we speak. But if we get into another global war situations with the superpower, the big problem that comes in is that our cybersecurity and defenses aren't up to par. So if a country like North Korea, Russia, or China wants to go to war with the U.S., instead of going head-to-head militarily where we compare missiles to missiles, tanks to tanks, they would just take out our infrastructure within the IT setting. So why not just cut off the power grid? Because Lord knows that a lot of the electrical systems that we have haven't been fixed or updated. What is the U.S. going to look like when you cut off all the power and internet to major cities? We would be helpless. And then from there, what if all of the computer programs that we rely on get hacked and can't use it? What if they found a way to go through our banking system and make our money worthless or wipe everything out? That would be total chaos. But those are the situations that they're preparing for and willing to enact. But we don't put in enough money to combat that. So if you're going to spend all this money, I want to know, what are you spending the money on? Because when you think security, especially for your home, you think I'm going to get an alarm system. I'm going to make sure to buy a gun. Wait, wait, what makes you think that it has anything to do with security at all, though? I'm just talking about the military. I know, but you're coming off from the default that that it must be all for our security and they're mismanaging their money. They're spending security on ground troops when they should be spending money over here on these other things. But I'm saying, where did you get the idea at all that it was for security? Because if you look at what each branch submits for what they need their money for, because they still need to submit a wish list of sorts like, hey, we need X amount of tanks. We need X amount of jets. We need X amount of carrier ships. We need X amount of missiles. Like, Why the fuck do we need so many missiles? We have enough to bomb every single country multiple times over before they can even react. At what point are we going to say, hey, are we sure you're spending the right amount of money on this? Is there a better way that you can reallocate those so resources? What I'm is you're asking the wrong question. You're thinking about, is there a better way to use this money? What I'm saying is that the U.S. Defense Department, the original name was the Department of War. The intent hasn't changed. It's still the same fucking department. They've only changed the name because of optics. It just looks and sounds better. But it's still the Department of War. And the Department of War is always to go out and get resources. So why are they going around? It's not for our security. It's to get shit. And why we spend so much money there versus other areas is because war and military is a sector of government spending that has a lot of middlemen and brokers. So there's a lot of private sector that can make a lot of money in between. Whereas if you just spend money on other, I guess when you build roads and stuff, some contractors can make money. But in the military, from people who make munitions to people who just broker the deals to Raytheon to GE, there's so many companies that can make money off of that deal. So that's why you constantly want those things to go. It's not that it benefits the government. 
it benefits all those private companies that will make money in that transaction. So those companies will always lobby for us to go out and do more war so that they could always be the middleman. My example that I use in my own head is like GoFundMe. Why does GoFundMe exist if I don't want to say 100%, but the majority of it is used to commit fraud? It's just a lot of times people conning people to give them money. And even if it's real people, then why aren't they using a platform where the money will be verified in how it's used? That's the popularity of GoFundMe. It's never verified. You can use it however the fuck you want. You could say it's going to be used for one thing and then use it just to keep the money. And they don't care because GoFundMe makes money on all the transactions. They're just the middleman. They know the use is bullshit, but they make money off of the bullshit. So they're incentivized to keep the bullshit going. A lot of what we do in the world, you could kind of use that example. It's kind of bullshit. We're just going around to cause more messes so that we could go around and try to fix more messes by doing more bullshit. It's like bullshit perpetuates more bullshit. But even though it's worthless or it might cause more problems down the line or cause problems right now, we're just bombing brown people, the private sector can make money off of it. Whereas some of these other things like social security, like Medicare, there's no private sector that's making a lot of money off of it. I mean, there's a few that do Medicare scams and whatever, but there isn't like these huge companies that are making all this money off of it. So it's more incentivized, get rid of those programs where the private sector isn't making all this money being bullshit middlemen. And of course, keep spending more money on those where we can make money on the transactions. It's like even when we did quantitative easing back in the day to pay for the fucking 09 financial crash, all these private companies still made money on the printing of bullshit money. All these private companies still made money off of the transaction fees that the bullshit money created. Mm -hmm. So you could still make money off of bullshit. So then how different is that than building fucking buildings in China that nobody's going to live in? At least at the end of it, you build something, you have a fucking building to look at. Whereas this is just calamity and chaos. It always had to do with plundering of assets and rich people making money off of our military. That's a lot of fucking money. Free college is estimated to be anywhere from 47 to $59 billion. So with just the military increase, not the budget, just the increase, you could have gotten free college. So when they say, how are we going to pay for this? How the fuck did you pay for the defense budget increase? Not defense budget, just the increase. You didn't have any problem passing that. But free college? Oh, fuck people getting smarter. No, fuck that. We don't need that. Are there any lobby uh, education well, lobbyists who would make money off of that? What? Funding for free college. Are there people who would make money off no, of that? No. So that's why nobody wants it. That's why there's no big lobbies pushing for it. There's no money in that. And that's why a lot of the good intent causes are going to go nowhere because it doesn't have any money backing it. But it's not a zero-sum game where like, oh, that money went here when it could have went over there. Actually, that money going to the military, even though we can't afford it, is proof that inflation doesn't work the way we think it does. Because how are we paying for this military when we can't even afford it, when we have all this deficit? We just keep printing more money. And we're printing money to pay for all this military. And we don't have hyperinflation in the country. 
So the military is actually proving that, yes, you can print money to pay for shit. So, yes, we can print money to do a lot of government programs. Now, why we shouldn't spend so much money on the military is a different reason is because is that all necessary? Is our intent really good? Or is it really still about going around and just trying to do war and for rich people to just get richer? That's why we shouldn't do it. And also, like I said, it's a con game. The whole idea of money, we, it only has value because we think it has value. You give a dollar to a monkey and it's not going to be like, oh, it's valuable. Aliens come down and you give them a $100 bill. They don't give a shit you gave them a $100 bill because they haven't bought into that value. They haven't bought into the story of money. It's all in our heads, right? Yeah. So it is always a psychological thing. So if we spent all this money on the military and also all this money on education or all this other stuff, people might be like, hey, we're spending too much money. Then why is the dollar worth anything? It's not that we print it too much. It's that it's just a psychological game. So it's not really you're using this money when it could have went there. It's more like if you use money in both places, people are going to know it's a scam. (laughs) (laughs) Unless we have, unless we get more people working and then. Yes. Then you have more people working, but even then you might still not want to spend that much money on both areas. Or unless productivity goes up, period, whether or not people are working. There was a study released recently from like, I don't know, PricewaterhouseCoopers or something where they were saying that AI is going to increase productivity by 1.2% over the next 10 years, but per year, which is like a lot. So as long as productivity goes up. I mean, you know how we call money fiat. Yeah. Meaning fiat means based on nothing. It's just in our head, right? Yeah. But most people don't know money is that. Right. So we have to kind of do this thing where we don't spend money everywhere just so people don't realize that it's fiat. Because if every person in the U.S. realizes fiat, consumer confidence might just go down. I mean, people don't know that con artist or a con is short for confidence. So everything is based on confidence. So we have to keep people's confidence in things high and not only people domestically, but internationally. And high productivity is one way. High employment is another way. And not having money spent all these stupid ways is another way. Why not just like explain to people that be very clear with them, like money is an illusion, like it is in your head. It's bullshit that we're all buying into, but it's not bullshit as long as productivity stays here. And as long as you put out more than you have to start with or more than you take in, like if you explain those things, I think that and that's like what gives money value. Or a currency, like a certain currency value. You can explain that. And then Whether and then confidence will, is restored. <laughs> Whether that'll restore confidence or not, I don't know. I mean, that is something you can do. I don't know if it'll work or not. It's like telling people that actually there's no such thing as free will. And if you really think this through, having no free will is actually freeing. You're like, oh, okay, it's just, <laughs> it is what it is, right? Cool. Yeah. I'm just going to be very like chill about it. But actually, even in trying to explain it to people, it's still just going to freak most people out. Truth is scary. That's really it. So even if that explanation works for you, that money is completely in our head and that doesn't bother you and doesn't freak you out, that explanation to person B, the same way you explain it to yourself might scare the fuck out of them. You can't control, you can't control their reaction. That's the other right, thing. Yeah. You could do, try to do whatever you want and explain it however you want or run things the way you want. But that doesn't mean that you can control other people's actions or 
other people's reactions. So earlier when you said, well, the military does a lot of things that we don't know about, where they have to deal with a lot of internal and external threats that they don't make to the public. The president gets X amount of death threats every day. They just have to decipher, okay, which one's real, which one is just a kid talking shit on Twitter. So it's one of those things where, oh, yeah, why can't we just know that? Because it would freak the fuck out of some people if you found out how close we were to either getting attacked or how many things were prevented or thwarted. So certain truths you just don't want to hear. You're like, I don't know. Like you're better off being ignorant in some things. And people at the top might say, oh, you don't need to know that. Like the Tooth Fairy or Santa. Your parents know it's not real, but they want to shield that for as long as possible until a certain point. It's like, hey, none of that shit was real. That was me. Yeah, that gift you got, that was all me. You know? So after a certain point, you're okay knowing the truth, but some people can't handle it. Yeah, but those are things that are more handled by special operatives or like by the CIA or FBI. We're talking about the military. So it's like, how often are countries planning to invade us? If they were completely transparent about it, we might be freaked out at how seldom countries are thinking about invading us. Like Canada is not thinking about invading us. You never know. Look at Justin <laughs> Trudeau. It's always smiling for a reason. Trump sent all those people to the border and then they have nothing to do now. And now that the midterms are over, they're about to send them back home. It was just all a con. And it also gave an explanation for why we even have these people to go out and do shit like that. Just in case. So are we safe from all the dangerous migrants? <laughs> I feel safer already. Just saying. Yeah. Those women and children coming over? No. I can't have that. <laughs> it might take my job someday. But that's the other thing about immigration that people freak out about. If you really wanted to disincentivize all these people from coming to this country, then penalize every company that hires illegal immigrants. Then you punish the businesses that do it, and then businesses will stop doing it. And then illegal immigrants will stop coming to the U.S. Mm -hmm. because there's no jobs for them to do. But who's going to do that? <laughs> you know? Yeah. The right wing would rather build a wall than punish businesses. Why aren't you then punishing businesses? Because they <laughs> lobby for me yeah. and they don't want to be punished. So I'd rather right. build a wall. But what is a wall? Again, it's just bullshit jobs. So the government can be the employer of last resort and hire people. So it's like, oh, we can't pay for shit because where would we get the money? We surely can't print it. And it's like, yes, we can. And then his <laughs> right. answer, which is the wrong answer, but his answer is, let's just build a wall. People have jobs to do. Then I could print all this more money. My question okay. is like less of like, oh, where, where are we going to get the money or whatever? It's, it's more like um, if the productive capital is being destroyed faster than it's being created, eventually society goes backwards into a downward spiral and we can't sustain if that makes sense so what do you mean by productive capital just like money period like okay. if, if it's going to lost causes if it's going into a black hole if it's all for charity and uh it's producing less value than it took in yeah then eventually nothing can sustain because it, it becomes a downward spiral versus if if you are making investments and you're it's um creating more value then the whole thing can sustain if productivity is going up how do we decide what's productive and what's not? Returns. And then what is returns? Well, but is productive capital being created or destroyed? Is it reproducing or is it? My point is, is that what we consider productive or what even makes returns, if we're talking about the stock market, it's not based on earnings. Like the returns on these stocks aren't based on earnings. 
is whatever we think. Tesla hasn't made a dollar and look how much it's gone up, right? Mm-hmm. And even after all the scandal with Elon Musk and him screwing over his investors, it's still not down to what it should be based on its earnings, right? So it's still a confidence game. It's still what people perceive it to be, right? So my point is, is that if people feel like more money is being wasted than produced, then yeah, the whole sham is up. I would agree with that. What people decide what the right thing is for that money to go, that's subjective. But can it be objectively, can it be objectively measured by? Money you, can't even you, be objective. No, but if you donate money to like a, a cause where you're not going to get any economic output, I mean, according to the, like the measure of productivity, you're not going to get economic output. That's, you're destroying capital. And sometimes that's okay. But you, if, if that happens more than capital is being created. What if it had no return, but it fed all these people? Then what? Schindler's list. That's essentially what you're talking about, no? What? Like, what if you spent all your money putting it into something that's not going to cause a return? It was like, you mean like Schindler's List? We saved all those Jews, but he went bankrupt in the way? Well, that's like an example of like a good. I just watched Schindler's List last night. And I was like, <laughs> oh yeah, that's exactly what he did. He lost all his money because he spent all of it trying to save Jews during the war. And then I was like, oh yeah, he went bankrupt. Wait, but are you saying that's a bad use of that money? I'm sa- Well, I'm saying that no, I'm asking you, Paul. Why no. did you even bring that up? Oh, when she said, yeah, if you keep doing that, it's going to ruin you. Oh, it ruined Schindler like that. I didn't have a... No, but she was saying that's an example of just throwing your money away to something worthless will lead to bankruptcy. Are you saying that's worthless? <laughs> Are you paying attention to what we're talking about here? Man? I just wanted to, you know, give Liam Neeson his credit. He didn't win the Oscar for that. I thought he should have. Shout out to Liam Neeson. That's basically... <laughs> that's exactly we it. We got to give a shout out to... Anyways, go on with what you were talking about. Let's let's maybe continue or like keep going in another because uh, I, I was trying to clarify it, but I don't think I can like I don't know how to how else to rephrase it. Well, you're I think you're trying to give examples of objective ways where like, oh, this is obviously wasteful or this is obviously something that's valuable. But with money, there is nothing objective. It's completely in our heads. Sure. But the only way that um sorry for like speaking kind of generically, but the only way that like England got out of the that gained like agricultural technology or was able to create agricultural technology was they saved up enough capital to invent tools and buy tools instead of having to keep slowly uh, producing food. They could now, they saved up enough money to then get a tool. So now that, that uh, expands their output even more by like an exponential amount. And so then eventually we like, humans were able to go from that stage of life to more productive agriculture. And then uh, we could move on to like more industrial things. But it started with saving up or taking productive capital instead of just like burning it uh, and destroying it. Like you you put it towards something that will eventually create like a, does that make sense? Well, what about it? Well, that's an object, that's an objective way to measure that is a way that ties, you know, money, this thing that's just in our head that actually ties it to like. But we don't do that. But we don't even do that now. It, I'm saying that I think that that'll happen no matter what. What will happen? Eventually it'll, it'll sh- like, like where we put our money, it, it's not just like you can't just, eventually it'll show up like in our uh, world in like a, an objective way tied to like reality. Does that make sense? So much has changed. And also even that example, I don't even know if it worked that way back then. 
if we're talking about early agriculture, so many people were serfs. So they never actually used real money. Serfs can't afford their own land, right? So they have to borrow land from somebody else. But the money that they earn isn't going to be enough to pay for anything. So this is where credit came from. Then from the person that they're borrowing the land, they borrow money. And then they get into this infinite cycle of debt. That's why they basically say surf is the same thing as slaves because they will never make enough money to pay anything back. And I think especially back then, they didn't understand interest and how any of this worked. So they didn't know that they were never going to pay it back. But my point is, is that majority of people, even from a long time ago, and especially now, they're talking about saving up money and paying for stuff. What I'm saying is, I don't know if we ever did that. My example will be that same example, but what happens when society borrows money to do that? Then what happens? Then that whole idea falls apart. If you're talking about the government, the government's doing it again yeah. because we everything we're doing right, right now is borrowing money. Even if we print money, we're borrowing money because that money should actually go back to paying down our debts. So everything we're doing, if we owe all this debt, is just borrow money because you're using money you don't have is what I'm saying. Right, yeah. So then... All these theories are based off of realities that we never lived in. Most of the time, we've been using credit. We've been borrowing money. And what is borrowed money? It's not even money you have. It's money that you are telling this other person you'll have in the future. So it's imaginary off of money that's already imaginary. It's this imaginary future money that you think you will have to pay this person back when money itself is imaginary. So it's like bullshit on top of bullshit. Right. When did we ever have this straight up system? In America? I, I don't know. I guess we didn't. Or in the world. Had. We never really had it. And I think that's what a lot of the gold bugs are complaining about is we have to go back to it where it can't be made up. It has to be tied to something. And we got off of gold because of Richard Nixon, who was a Republican. So even if you think Republicans are for laissez-faire and like old school classical liberalism, No, they're the ones who wanted to get off of gold. Why? Because of credit. You can't extend credit if everything has to be backed by gold. If everything is backed by nothing, then you could lend as much money as you want and you could print as much money as you want. And even the value of gold is just in our heads. But my point is, is that it's become more and more and more diluted and based off of just complete psychology. At least gold, it exists. You could hold it in your hand. Mm Mm-hmm. When the dollar was backed by gold, I could go and convert it and they'll give me something tangible that I could replace it with. Now, a dollar, what can I replace it with? Nothing. I could buy something with it. I could do a transaction. But that's different from converting it to its base layer, meaning we remove the base layer of gold. So the base layer of the dollar is fiat, meaning ultimately the base is just based off of our collective agreement on the value. Mm -hmm. So underneath the dollar is just an idea. But we're not even using the dollar anymore. We're just using credit. And are you saying that that's that's really bad or really good? I don't know if it's really good or really bad. That's just the way it is right now. So all of our preconceptions aren't even based off of our reality. All of these rules and ideas that people have isn't even the reality we're living in now. Yeah, I agree with that. 
why don't we live in the reality we live now? These are not the rules. And also a lot of these ideas were created before even the idea of behavioral economics, which is more verifying that it's completely all in our heads and everything is based off of irrational ideas and, and whatever we think something is worth. With all that said, <laughs> it's hard out there to be a, a young person, right? The world is complicated. <laughs> It is complicated, man. I mean, I think that it's helped me to and I I know that you're saying that it's not uh, that the way that I react is not the way that all young people would react, but it's helped me sort of better navigate and feel better about the world around me, understanding all of that. What? Understanding what? All of what we were just talking about. Uh, All of money is an illusion, blah, blah, blah. But even when you were understanding the basics and learning about day trading, right? You had one idea. And you didn't know that money was just made up, right? I had no idea, yeah. But later on, as you studied this more and more, and when you learned more about the history of money and whatever, right, Mm -hmm. you started discovering like, wait, what I thought was the fundamentals was bullshit also. Yeah, right. So even though you started out on stocks, probably especially when you started getting interested in Bitcoin and the whole cryptocurrency market, you realize, oh, shit. Everything is a cryptocurrency. Everything is just in our heads. Yeah, that's when the philosophy of it all like connected. So even old paradigms about the economy is changing. Yeah. And actually now you guys, especially it was Gen Z who was buying up all this fucking crypto and Bitcoin and shit, right? So they're living in a new paradigm post 09. A lot of people, if you're young enough, you've only existed in a world where Bitcoin existed. So if you're like a, like a 10 year old, a nine year old or whatever, you've only lived in a world with Bitcoin. I could see how for young people now, they're just like, what the fuck is anything? And you hear about fake news and mainstream media. You can't trust that. What's up? What's down? How does any of this shit work? For you growing up in the age of the internet and now with Bitcoin changing the paradigm of everything you knew about stock trading and what value is to the gig economy, to just being an outlier and creating your own career path. Does it feel like things are less stable or does it feel like you live in an unstable world? Everything is just being made up as we go. Yeah, but it, it's weird. That doesn't bother me because my stability or my feeling stable just comes from what I know that I know, if that makes sense. So like, again, it's all unstable, but I know that. So I'm, I'm good, if that makes sense. Or like, it's all money's made up, but I understand that. So therefore, my confidence is completely... I'm good. Like I, as long as I feel like I have an understanding of what is going on, then it's like, that's all that I need to feel like stable, I guess. That's because you've been doing 20 hours of meditation and biohacking and drinking Red Bulls (laughs) and all that stuff. Biohacking? I don't do that shit. Do you do that, Paul? Biohacking? Yeah. All the time. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Okay. I'm productive for nothing. Like I can, oh, now I can watch Seinfeld and Schindler's List at the same time. Oh. See? So I'm optimally performing at tasks that are meaningless. Mm. But, you know, it's funny because when you mentioned currency and it's all bullshit, it really came to me when I had friends in prison. And then... (laughs) As we all do. (laughs) So they'll say, hey, man, are you okay? What do you need? What can I get for you, man? Like I'm on the outside. I says, I need cigarettes. Like, you picked up smoking? Like, no. Cigarettes are the currency of 
the incarcerated. I need cigarettes. And so I had to just go buy cartons of cigarettes. Wait, is that a true story? Is that? It's true. I don't know if it's currently the thing, but when I was in high school, I didn't hang with the best crowds growing up. I'll just put it that way. And federal prisons are far in California, so I had to hitch a ride to get there. But anyways, the point being, I learned early on, wait, you don't need money? It's like, no money. It's it's okay. And it helps settle things on the outside. But in here, I need cigarettes. Value is based on what people want. Yeah. So then even if I gave him a wad of cash, we'll be like, I can't really use that here. I need cigarettes. And I thought, huh, what if what I know about money is completely false? That's really cool. And I learned it through through people that most people would associate themselves with. But that's Street how knowledge. I came to learn. Yeah, that's how I came to learn. It's like, <laughs> oh yeah, cigarettes. It's like, oh, and then when you see people smoking and throw away their butts, it's like, man, you're not even done in prison. That can still go for <laughs> a good amount of favors. Everything you need to learn, you can learn from prison. Absolutely. It functions as its own <laughs> ecosystem. Actually, that's wow. another example of what we're currently using. Even though most people aren't aware of what I'm telling you about, we're not actually using tax money. We're actually just printing money to pay for stuff. Even though that's not explicitly taught by anybody or nobody in politics is talking about it, they do understand that in politics. It's just that the way they're doing it is much more unscrupulous. Does that mean exactly? unscrupulous, meaning unethical, or it's more hurtful for people? They know that's how the game works, but they're trying to rig the game so they can still make money off of bullshit, like with war or things like that, right? They understand that so much of the value of the dollar is going to be based on productivity and how many people are working or not. What's an unethical way to keep unemployment low? Slavery? That's one way. If you put everybody who's unemployed in prison, we could also get to zero percent unemployment. Does that make sense? Yeah. So instead of the Guarantees Job Act, which would be an ethical way to do this, mm-hmm. we just start fucking getting people hooked on opioids. They're out of the, the job market because people who are on oh opioids God. and people like that are not considered part of the job market. That's another reason why it's so low. And people who have given up looking for jobs because they're so low or depressed or just fucking beaten up by the world are also not. The, how they track Unemployment is just based on people who are actively looking. They don't count people who are not looking. Has that number fluctuated a lot or has it gone down a lot or the number of people who are actively looking? Yeah, that's gone down. That's part of the reason why unemployment is so low. Uh, That's something that the Republicans were criticizing Obama for. You have rigged numbers because there's just less people looking for work. But we're still counting it the same way for Trump. The Republicans aren't complaining about that now. But it still doesn't matter. It's agnostic to who's in charge. We're going to count unemployment the same way. My point is, is that another way to lower unemployment is if people are removed from the employment market because they're on opioids, they're no longer looking, yeah. uh, they're too unhealthy, or they're in prison. And so what's the incentive of trying to do something about the opioid crisis? What's the incentive of trying to do something with all the mental health issues people have or people's health or giving them uh, some kind of single payer health care? What's the point of trying to release people who are in prison for nonviolent crimes where they just got caught three times? Maybe they got caught for possession of marijuana three times and now they're locked up forever, you know? Yeah. Why release them? First, you can make a lot of money because a lot of Prisons are privately run now. But second, it's another way 
to keep uh, unemployment low. So my point is, is that they understand that it's all about the employment rate and productivity. There's a lot of ways to keep that low. So to keep that game going, you could have utopia or you could have barbarism, but they'll both work to keep that con going on in your head. And the way we've done it now is more towards a more barbaric side, which is locking up tons of people. There's a lot of legitimate criminals, but there's also an incentive to keep people locked up, lock up people for petty shit or minor shit, or even keep a system that allows for a lot of crime because then you could keep locking them up, keeping unemployment low and keeping people giving them jobs to just go hunt people down and lock them up. And also giving jobs to all the people who work in prisons and but so But those forth. kind of jobs, did, the, did those increase productivity, like the actual, the metric of productivity? Do like bullshit jobs and um, yeah, do bullshit jobs increase productivity? How productivity is measured is really vague. Even if you look online or look at the government definition, they don't clearly define it. They just say input versus output. And the amount of hours an employee works versus how much goods are produced and goods also meaning services or intellectual goods. So how it's defined, I don't know, especially when it's not a tangible good, they don't really explain it. And it's something also I think is fluid where they get economists and specialists to kind of track this over time and try to figure out the best metrics. But it's the same way inflation is measured. It's really vague and and you don't know if that's the best way they measure it. I mean, let, we could just we could just measure it by living standards. Are more people? Are, is the living standards for yeah. more people going up? Just yeah. based on like, that's hard to measure, also, because you could look at GDP or like the wealth of the country, and people are saying based on that, and then you average it out for most people, things are good. But then you look at, but then you look at top versus the bottom. Then it looks another way. You look at then the median income of the U.S. versus the median income of other developed countries. And it also doesn't look good. Yeah. All of these things are not so clear cut. There's always constant arguments about what's the best way to measure? Is this the best way to measure? But ultimately, it is a con game. And so much of it isn't about trying to teach every person what all the factors are. It's more about the big memes, the big ideas. Like, can you put an idea on a meme? That's about what people can understand. If it takes three memes to explain something, then that's too complicated. Yeah. Oh, look, unemployment is low. Why is it low? Don't worry about that. (laughs) We're low, right? Is it because of Guarantees Jobs Act? Or is it because we put people in prisons? People aren't looking. They're too unhealthy. They're mentally ill. Uh, they're addicted to opioids, whatever. Don't ask why. It's low. And as far as inflation, are people buying shit? Are these certain goods still about the same price as they were last year? Yes. Okay. Why are people buying more stuff? Why are these goods the same price? Don't ask that. Don't ask about that. All right. Yeah. So long as, you know, the system is good. So long as systems are good and everything seems okay, then nobody asks. When things are bad is when people ask. And it's kind of like the frog in the pot. It's not apparent right away that things are bad. 
I think to people who are like part of my generation, because we grew up on the internet, we know immediately that we're, we're immediately aware of the fact that there's so much going on that uh, we're not aware of and that people are like kind of trying to just like not explain. Um, and I think that that causes a lot of the uncertainty and anxiety and all of that. But I think that we we already, there's already like a premonition that that there's a lot of like messed up stuff kind of going on underneath the surface and that there's just a lot that we don't understand. There's a lot of doubt. Yeah, immediately. I think that's why more young people asking for things like free college or some kind of job guarantee or even something like universal basic income because they're not quite sure what the hell is out there for us. So give us some guarantees. Yeah. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. From your experience, do you feel like most young people you know tend to be more blue or are they more red? Because blue, it, it's okay. like not even a question. Why do you think that is? Because on the internet, so much of young trolls are controlling the narrative on the internet, right? And I would agree with you that most young people are blue, but why aren't they so susceptible to all the right-wing trolls on the internet who are like trying to brainwash everybody to be more right-wing. Why aren't they susceptible to that? Yeah. Or why are young people who spend time online and see the same right-wing trolls that we all do, why aren't they being converted? I mean, I could say instinct. I I don't know. I, I really don't know. It just doesn't feel right. I'm not sure. Do you just think like young people have more of an understanding that this is just nonsense? We shouldn't take it too seriously. It's just stupid stuff on the internet. There's probably some of that, but I think that a lot of the right-wing trolls and uh, that's very devoid of like having any virtue or having any like, yeah, like any human sort of, like they're very robotic. I think that culture is like very robotic and kind of cruel in a way, Mm. um, which a lot of people are fine with. um, But a lot of young people uh, for, for whatever reason, like have a more so than me personally, but like a lot of uh, younger people have like a ton of just natural empathy. Like they're just very empathetic. And so they kind of see that and just like doesn't feel right, I think. So they're kind of, I don't know, they're like sort of. Maybe it's the older people seeing all that shit and getting brainwashed. Maybe the younger people are out there living life, hustling 24 seven, trying to be billionaires and trying to live their best life. Actually. (laughs) And the rest of of the older people are just like at home. I went to work, now I'm home, I'm tired. Let me just look at the internet. Let me watch Fox News. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. my brother is around your age. Yeah. He was born in 95. And just from his perspective and watching how he was able to form more or less a political identity or his principles, it came down to, okay, I know that for a fact, it's a real fear that some of the kids I either went to school with can get gunned down. And there's not a whole lot of things that I can do to stop it. And the people who I elect to office aren't exactly looking out for me. And he also realizes school is insanely expensive. And just from looking at my older brother or my peers, they're not compensated for what they were promised. So if they said, if you take out $50,000 in loans, you might be able to get a job that pays you ninety dollars or $100,000. That's not happening. You're just saddled with debt. And you're looking at certain people who are coming out and identifying with different genders or as either gay or lesbian, or I don't know if it's the same term for both. And for them, if they're not accepted, it's like, well, that's not right. I know that person. I know who they are. They're good. They're kind. They're funny. They're Mm -hmm. smart. And 
that might be one of the th- reasons why they tend to lean more left politically, because for them, it's the system doesn't seem to be working. The rules aren't in our favor, and the people who were supposed to look out for us aren't doing that. Yeah, and if you just look at like how we were raised, and kind of uh, a lot of people in this day and age have like like we were raised in fairly cushy ways compared to if you look at other countries now or like you know in past times um so we've been able to sort of develop a more soft like approach to everything yeah my sister is actually she's the youngest she was born in 2001 so for her she's never lived in a time of peace when the US was not at war the US is always as long as she's been alive the US has been at war that's the thing for all of us, man. We've, yeah. all, we've been in perpetual war. But it's one of those things where it's not constantly bombarded. Where she grew it's up maybe in the a, internet too. Yeah, she grew up in a time. Well, when she's she, grown up in a different media cycle where we were all born in war, but we weren't as aware of it because we didn't have the internet, social media, and yeah. the 24-hour news cycle. Exactly. She's only known that. So she only knows of it and because that's all that's presented. And you have to be worried about this war and these group of people and this. It's like, am I ever going to be at a point in time where I feel everything's cool? Don't worry. You don't need to check in because she can't open Snap, Instagram, or something without breaking news. This is going on. Because it used to be, Dave Chappelle mentioned it when the Challenger explosion happened. And it was a huge thing and people freaked out. And now it's like a challenger explosion happens every other week. Mm. So people are just, oh, okay, another shooting? Oh, I guess. Also, don't you think that more so than older people who don't think about it as often, do you think that younger people like yourself, Rachel, or your siblings, do they think more about global warming than maybe? Because probably I don't think about it unless somebody brings it up. But is that more of your concerns, global warming? That is actually one of like the biggest, and I read a study recently that said that that's like one of the biggest things that for both of Gen Y and Gen Z, that's like a huge uh, unconscious thing that's always in the back of our minds. That's probably pushing them more left also, because even though the U.S. only has two parties, it's more like the two parties adopt all the subsequent other parties. So let's say there's actually like 10 parties, but the U.S. will adopt some of the views or the policies of the green party even though it's not a green party because there's only two yeah they'll absorb some of the policy stuff so even though the democrats aren't socialists they might adopt some of those ideas they don't have a labor party but they might adopt some of those policies and the right wing does the same with some of the you know alt-right policies the tea party the libertarian stuff they'll absorb that in so in the u.s i think If you're more interested in green, you tend to lean more left because the left will absorb a lot of those same arguments. Yeah. So I think that's another reason. But what I wonder, and you guys can both answer for yourself or maybe for younger, like your siblings or whatever, but what if we lived in a world where, not even a world, in the US, everybody got healthcare and college was free? What would happen to the military? Like who would go to the military then? AI, the robots. No, no, I'm saying like because one of the big reasons people go to the military is to pay for college, to get benefits, all this stuff. But you just lose a huge recruiting material. And I just told you about how much money the US private sector, or actually the global private sector, makes off of war. You remove all these people, how are they going to still make the same money? Robots (laughs) to replace our jobs. Or, or, Or even divorces. 
a lot of people stay in marriages, even if it's awful, because they need the health care from their spouse or they need some kind of income or they can't afford to go back to school or whatever. What would happen to marriages? Or even what would happen to jobs? Because a lot of times, even though if we're going to go libertarian, right, people are also capital. We're labor capital. So we should also be able to move freely. But people don't. They're tied to their jobs or they're loyal to their jobs, right? Which is actually anti-free market. But if people had benefits wherever they went, then I don't have to stay with this job. If I go over here, I'll still have those great benefits, right? Because benefits is one of the biggest reasons that employers have you locked down. But if you have all those health benefits anyway, and you could now pay for your kid to go to college because it's free, you would have more of an open, free labor market. Why would big business want that? Because here's the other thing about libertarian and why there's so many different types of libertarians. Because if you're a business owner, you're a pro-business libertarian. If you're a stock trader, you might be a pro-competitive markets libertarian. That's not the same thing because pro-business can mean monopolies as well. Mm -hmm. That's why a lot of times people who are Wall Street traders, because people who aren't educated about economics like to lump Bezos with Wall Street traders, all the rich people, all the same. But there are nuanced differences. Yeah. Wall Street people, they have their own evils, but one of them isn't about trying to not keep a competitive market. Right. Otherwise, yeah. I would just buy Amazon stock and that's it. Right? Yeah. No, we want to be able to have a competitive market. Yes. Right? Otherwise, actually, if one company was the only stock, that would actually destroy the market as well. But if I'm a pro-business libertarian, I want an Amazon type thing where my businesses can crush all other businesses. In fact, my business can get so big, I can rule the whole country. And it's a private government now, right? So that's not the same thing. So my point is, is that if you're pro-economics or more about uh, fiscal, laissez-faire, competitive markets, then you should want free-moving labor capital, right? My question for you guys was that if school was free and then you had single-payer healthcare, what would happen to the military? What would happen to businesses tying you down? What would happen to divorce rates? I think we would need to create a lot of robots for like the military or for like things that people. So you're saying that people wouldn't go to the military anymore. It would disincentivize them. A good amount of people, I, th I feel like. Yeah, definitely. They would spend all their time creating robot soldiers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> My point is then Thank that you. why we spend money on the military and why we don't have free college or single payer health care has nothing to do with not being able to afford it. And everything to do with, hey, then who's going to go to the military? What about traditional families? What if divorce rates go up? Yeah. Oh, I have all these businesses that want me to do stuff for them. What if everybody can like leave that business now because it's a shitty company that treats employees awful and go somewhere else? It has nothing to do with like, oh, it's about economic reasons and we can't afford it. And everything to do with all this cronyism to bullshit capitalism to making money on the military to pushing of traditional families. So then a solution would be to like make everyone aware of like the economic. Well, my point is, is that Republicans will say we're against those things because we're pro-economics. And really, they're not pro-economics. They're anti-economics and more about putting people in the military, sure, keeping yeah. people married keeping people tied to their jobs right. and not competitive markets and not free movement of people. Right. 
You know, it's interesting. I think a lot of people, especially the younger generation, it's not so much that they want the ceiling. They want to all be millionaires and billionaires. It's more of, I just want certain things that I believe are necessities to be guaranteed because your health to a large degree is out of your control. If you're a kid and you have cancer, that's not something you cause. It's not like you smoke a pack a day and then you develop lung cancer at age five. It's just one of those things where, well, why is it that to a large degree, we penalize somebody for being in sick health or in poor health? And if they're not covered by a private company that can oversee it and you can't afford it, then maybe your right to live isn't guaranteed. Same thing with education, where a lot of the things that we seem to take for granted is knowledge. And, oh, you want to know more, you're going to have to pay for it. So you have, I think, and this is just speaking from my siblings who are younger, they say, you just want everybody to have the same ground floor access. It's like, we can all start from the same starting point. I don't need a leg up in the sense that, why don't you start me ahead of everybody else? It's just, hey, I'm starting way back here and certain people are starting way up there. That doesn't seem right. right. I think the younger generation, as a generation as a whole, feel like they're starting behind everybody else because we're starting off with more debt. We have to work three jobs to make ends meet. Rent is way higher. Who can buy a house? Like, yeah. Especially in LA, like yeah. cost of living is crazy high and it's yeah. only going up. Yeah. So I think they want a support floor, right? Yeah. Uh, but, and I think that, um, well, this maybe goes back to like the outlier thing versus changing the actual system. But you can either like elect changes at like a government level or you can encourage like people to come up with ideas that could change the system and do it like through a business or through starting a thing or or versus like making that change in the government, if that makes sense. And certain things the market can't solve. I yeah. think recently William Norhouse won the Nobel Prize in Economics for that, where he focused a lot of his work on climate change. I think I brought it up previously where companies, they're not incentivized to care about the environment, so they don't care about pollution, so they'll keep doing it because no one's really stopping them. And it's one of those things that affects everybody, but they say, well, fuck the environment. We got board Well, members. even if they care about it, that's not how they're incentivized. So even if the individual people in a company care, they still have to make profit. Otherwise, they'll go out of business. Sure, they have to so, balance the two. That's, yeah. Well, it's not even balancing the two. If you try to balance the two, but you're not making any money, your company will be in serious trouble. I, I mean, mean, Tesla do doesn't make beginning. any money, but they care about... But eventually, they have to make money. Yeah. That, that does have to happen. Right. What do they do in the absence of money? They're borrowing money. <laughs> Yeah. So whatever money they should have made to pay for stuff, they're, to pay for stuff straight up, they're constantly borrowing they're just money. Just printing money. Yeah. So that's not a sustainable solution either. Yeah. And that's more bullshit. But yeah, to Paul's point that even if people want to, if that's not how it's incentivized, they're not going to do it that way. So sometimes you got to go beyond incentives and you got to make people do the right thing or companies do the right thing or create new incentives for them. Maybe that we should have green energy subsidies like we'd have subsidies for fucking every other old bullshit legacy industry, you know? Yeah. Going back to your speaking point about businesses solving things, right? A lot of times they like to look back in the past of the industrial revolution or, you know, how innovation was created, right? Or not innovation invented, but there was so much innovation happening at a certain time. Mm -hmm. You're comparing a time that 
it wasn't even imaginable to patent a non-material thing, a patent, an idea. So the whole reason that po- proliferated was that you couldn't have businesses patenting idea. You could just have an idea and go with it. Yeah. Now you have an idea and another company's like, well, I've been patent trolling and I already have that patent. Right. And you can't do shit with it. Right. And it's just going to sit on the shelf or whatever. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's the other thing. We can't, we don't even have a competitive market for ideas because of the bullshit of patenting ideas. So if you really wanted this competitive market and ideas to be able to come from anywhere from the crowd, then everybody has to have the ability to be a tinkerer, but we don't allow that. How does it, or who, what stops that? Why? Just because like, just because patent laws, that's like what is chokeholding it. Yeah. If you came up with an idea and I know this because I've tried to invent something in the past, there's like so many other things that nobody's working on. Yeah. That's basically my idea that somebody's already preemptively patented just so that somebody else couldn't come up with it. Yeah. So we've already created a legal system that's been funded and supported by corporations where we don't have open free market of ideas. Big business likes to pretend, oh, business is going to solve all the answers when they've even created a system where you can't, where other new businesses can't even come to the market. Right. So it's all bullshit. (laughs) Yeah. That's the struggle. (laughs) If you're already old enough and you have a good job and you've already lived most of your life and you only have the next half of your life to live, you might be okay. You got your 401k, you're okay. But the young people are coming up during this time where they're questioning everything. And also it's kind of like the end game of all these kind of cons are starting to fall apart. We already had that happen once with the 09 where what was the bubble? It was this confidence that grew, grew, grew until one day we were like, the jig is up. This is all bullshit. Mm -hmm. And then once everybody felt like it was bullshit, they started trying to pull money out of the, uh, out of their bank accounts and all these banks started failing. It's It's like the baby boomers ran a tab and then Gen Z is left with the check. Like you guys got this right. It's like, what? (laughs) It's like, if you went to a restaurant with a hundred dollars to spend, and then your parents is like, yeah, we'll get a couple appetizers, we'll get some entrees, and then maybe a side dish and dessert. And then it came out to 170. You know, you got to start. It's like, no, I'm 70 short. <laughs> well, tough shit. I, I'm done eating and I'm good. So now it's, well, what am I going to do? How am I going to come up with the 70? Do I need to go in the kitchen and start washing dishes? If you look at ancient civilizations and you look at their history, you'll see sometimes, oh, they came really close to calamity where they might all die, right? And then you study these civilizations. (laughs) When they get to that point where they might all die, almost none of them self-corrected to live. That was the point where they died. Like, uh, what is it, Easter Island? They were like cutting down all the trees and how they survived was going from island to island to forage and get resources and food, right? And then I think they cut down all their own trees and that was it. That was the end of Easter Island. What the fuck? I mean, that was like the same thing that happened to Rome. A lot of civilizations... They get to the point of the brink and people are like, hey, we're at the point of the brink, (laughs) but they never self-correct. So now they just go over the edge. Yeah. But now we're a globalized world. (laughs) It's all of us together. So there is no like hidden tribe where if we fuck up this one tribe in, you know, some long lost island will be like, oh, we saw what they did. We'll learn from their mistake. No, we're all watching each other and making the same mistake together. It would have to be like an alien tribe would come to earth and be like, oh, this is what they did. They fucked up. Okay, let's not do that. (laughs) But humans have been very bad 
at self-correcting themselves before calamity. They just wait till it happens. Before it was okay because it was just that particular civilization died and then other civilizations learned from it or didn't make that same mistake. But now we're just one big civilization. Do you think that's why aliens haven't visited us? They're observing all this from afar from their from their binoculars and be like, oh, fuck that. This <laughs> does not end well. I've seen this movie. Actually, there's something called the Fermi Paradox, but it's basically saying, why haven't we been visited? Right. Because maybe all civilizations get to a point of innovation until they just fuck up and kill themselves. So that's why the, the skies aren't teeming Shit. with UFOs. And, like, you know, <laughs> in, in, in infinite space, in infinite time, then there should be all these UFOs flying around. Why aren't they... They wouldn't be UFOs. There would just be aliens all over the place visiting us or whatever. Why aren't they happening? Because they call it the great filter. All <laughs> civilizations get to a point where they just die off. And that's why there isn't that many or none at all. And maybe we'll get to that great filter. So to your point, maybe there is no other aliens. They did the same shit we did until like Thanos's uh, planet. They just killed themselves. Maybe they're just waiting for us to die off like all the fuck up. And then when they're all gone, we'll go in and take all their resources. <laughs> Like the aliens are much more practical than we give them credit for. They're like, we could fight them and deal with nukes, but or we could just wait till they all die off and we should be okay. But even with that, they'll eventually die off too. <laughs> but yeah, they'll be around longer than us. This is not what we should tell Gen Z. They're going to like, <laughs> they're going to feel like terrible about the future. <laughs> That's okay. Because like you said, when you explain things to people that there's no free will, they're going to feel better. But now you're going against what you said earlier. Sometimes explanations just make you feel worse. You're making me think differently now. Yeah. yeah. I've changed during this. See, because I can't control your reactions. Yeah. I could explain I, things to I you. I understand that now. Yeah. Because actually that's very freeing to me. We just get to a thing and then that's it. <laughs> you know, it's like a book. Beginning and an end. And, uh, bada bing, bada boom. That's okay with me. I'm okay. It's like that scene from Men in Black when Will Smith asked Agent K. He's like, why don't you just tell people they're aliens? People are smart. And then he has to correct them. He's like, no, 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 no. A person is smart. But people are dumb, <laughs> panicky, terrible group. You can't do that. And I think that's essentially what it is. Maybe if you sit someone down individually and you explain them, they might be, okay, but what? And then you can answer Guide, questions. Yeah. But then if you tell them as a group, that's going to cause a mass panic. And that's the wisdom of Tommy Lee Jones. But see, we're explaining it to Rachel here just her by herself and it's still disconcerting so even then it's not a guarantee <laughs> right work. so the yeah. moral of this tale Rachel for a young person the moral of the story is that even when you explain it you can't control other people's reactions thank you for this <laughs> several hour talk on that yes Sha -la -la -la. <laughs> I don't know where you're going with that you don't remember that what are you trying to do? Anyways, the end. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, what are we trying to do? And there ain't no nothing We can't love each other through What would we do, baby Without us Sit, Ubu, sit. Good dog.